Although that was composed by Two Steps from Hell, and the song is titled Victory. So I thought I'd start today with a little bit of wisdom. Um, you know, having said that, I was actually kind of thinking of what if I had observed the conversation between our creator and the person that hates mankind, right? And so I would kind of see him like a spoiled little kid. And all of us know what that sounds like. Like, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm going to do? Yeah, you're going to see what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them all corrupt and evil, the ones you love. I'm going to make them all crazy. I'm going to have them killing each other and fornicating. And then I'm going to destroy everything you created. And there's God saying, all right, sure, whatever. I'm game. You know, I actually had this conversation with a friend like a couple weeks ago. And I was like, let's like pretend... I'm the bad guy and like I'm I'm Lucifer and God and this is the way the conversation would go and it would be kind of like you watch what I'm gonna do and it's like you know I'm gonna destroy it all and God's like all right sure whatever you know, kind of like we, the parents, say to kids that they're like, watch when I turn 18, I'm going to totally move out and I'm going to have like the best apartment, the best car. And it's like, sure, okay. You're going to walk out there with like no money and do it. That's how I I assume the conversation went. <laughs> this is my assumption. And God's just sitting there like, all right, look, Lucifer, you didn't even beat your brothers and sisters that helped, you know, situate everything the, the the archangels the angels right you didn't you couldn't even beat them you're gonna corrupt everyone and then you know the kid stomps his feet like oh my god is that a threat i don't need to threaten you i'm just saying it's happened you make absolutely no difference evil makes absolutely no difference it cannot change the plans and his grace can annihilate any wicked, wickedness, any. So any hell that is unleashed can be undone simply with his presence. Any, uh, you know, corruption, fornication, is good. And any harm you cause will be paid a million fold in grace to others. Do we forget the stories of Noah's flood? And that's the thing, you know, when we have this conversation, I think, shoot, it's June, right? Damn, we had it in April, right around my mom's birthday. And we were having this conversation. Um, I think it was live on her show overseas, damn, in South Africa. And we were just talking about religion and how people have lost hope. And it's like, people forget. People think that what they see in, in this realm is actually factual correct. And, and the thing is, at this point, you can actually see that it's all a show. You can actually see it. And I'm going to demonstrate it to you just to show you. So a little bit of wisdom. I thought, you know, I've talked about how I love language. So by the way, on the screen, 
is uh, very ancient symbols. I've studied this, uh, these for years in part of my um, assignments. And so this symbol right here that kind of looks like Ebola is actually an ancient language, like very ancient. And it stands for ancient wisdom. So weird that it looks like Ebola, right? Right? So weird. So um, I wanted to say I love reinforcing things that I've talked about. And, you know, as someone that went through school and, you know, studied the body and, and mathematics and, and languages, I have to say that I, I, I think I've stated this before and I know it sounds weird, but um, I remember the first time I went into a surgery and um, it was an open, it was an intestinal thing. And I remember that the attending called me to assist for hands being the older one, right? And I remember I stuck my finger literally in this person's open cavity. And I just kind of sat there. I, I think I looked probably super, <laughs> super weird. Kind of like, have you ever guys watched yourself watching a movie where your mouth hangs open, right? Um, and I put my finger in the person's cavity and it was merely a second, maybe two before I was like, yeah, let me use the retractor kind of thing. And I could feel the life and all I could say is, wow, this is so incredible. How can anyone refute that there is something more intelligent, that this is intelligent design? And not only that, I remember when I went to a um, first experiment for PNA, which is um, reconstructed DNA from scratch, meaning it doesn't exist and they create life from the beginning. So they had done all this extensive research on the computer, it worked and everything, but in real life it did not which means that there's something more amazing. So I thought today, before we start our news, um, we actually see the secret code in creation, like actually see it with our eyes. So I want you guys to um, take a listen to this. I had a tremendous interest in science. And having been reared in a Christian home, I'm very grateful for that. I loved the Lord and I wanted to serve Him. And so it was only a matter of time that I would end up reading a book that had evolution in it. And I could remember it was a dinosaur book. I was very young, loved dinosaurs, what little boy doesn't. And I'm reading this book on dinosaurs and it talked about how one kind evolved into another. And I remember thinking, well, that's not right because I'd read Genesis and I knew that the Lord created certain kinds of organisms. And I remember asking my dad about that. I, I remember, first of all, being kind of angry at the book, you know, what, what's, what's going on, or confused. And then I asked my dad about it, and he said, well, he gave me very good advice. He said, well, we don't, uh, we don't believe that. He said, we believe what the Bible teaches. It's just that simple. 
And I remember being very angry at the book for having lied to me because I loved science and it was it was depressing for me and, and irritating to pick up a book that is supposed to excite me and teach about God's creation. And instead it was telling me a, a story, a fictional story, as if it were true. It made me very angry. And then I wanted to throw the book away. And I asked my dad again, you know, should I just toss it? And then he gave me another piece of advice that I, I've treasured to this day. He says, no, because it's got some good stuff in it too. You see what he was doing is he was teaching me discernment. He was teaching me that not everything you read is necessarily factual. You have to think through these issues. And as Christians, we need to filter what we observe in the world. We need to filter it through God's word. That's something that I, I uh, still apply today because I find that God's word is always true. Let God be true, though every man a liar, the Bible says. And now I've, I go around teaching people this and, and showing them how science confirms biblical creation, how it lines up with it when you understand the facts. And I see the light bulb go on. And this is why creation science is important to me. It's not just because I have an interest in science, which I do, but it's because I want people to be saved. I want them to recognize that God's word is true from the beginning. And therefore, I need to remove this myth, this stumbling block that evolution is somehow supported by science. It isn't. Good science confirms biblical creation. So before we start with his lecture, I want you to know that we're going to talk a little bit, he's going to talk a little bit about math, but it's done in a way, and I try to find things that anybody can make sense of. And for those of you that are listening, I urge you um, to look uh, this professor up. It is the most incredible 15 minutes we're going to spend. That's why I started the show early. Numbers that was discovered in the 1980s. It's been there since creation, but it wasn't until the 1980s we got smart enough to finally decipher it. And it is mind-blowing. And it, it, this is something that I read about when I was pretty, pretty young, really, and it just, it was mind-blowing to me. And I want to share this with you because I dare say there is no secular or atheistic explanation for what I'm going to share with you today. This, this secret code only makes sense in the Christian worldview. And so we're going to have to talk a little bit about that, what that means. When I was young, very young, uh, and my mother would prepare these wonderful meals, but sometimes she would put broccoli on the plate, which I didn't really care for. And in rare moments of maturity, I would eat the broccoli first. Get it out of the way, because the rule was you had to eat everything on your plate. So I get the broccoli out of the way first so that I could then enjoy the rest of the meal. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So in that spirit, we got some broccoli to do first. But stay with me because it's going to get really good. Okay? You won't be able to enjoy the rest of the meal unless you go through the broccoli. So we're going to talk first about sets. Now, a set in, in mathematics is just what you think it is. It's a, it's a, it's a group of, in this case, numbers that have a common... Uh, defined property. And so you can have uh, different types of sets out there. And in most sets, some numbers are included in the set and other numbers are excluded from the set. This is pretty easy. It depends on how you define the set. So you could have the set of even numbers, those numbers that are uh, evenly divisible by two. And in that set, those numbers would be included in it and those other numbers would be excluded from it. That's pretty easy. That's the set of even numbers. We could consider the set of negative numbers. Now, that's a different set, isn't it? And so a different set of numbers will be included in there, and then those other ones will be excluded. Now, for those two sets, you can tell just by looking at the number whether or not it belongs, right? Uh, in this case, if it doesn't have a little negative sign in front of it, it doesn't belong. 
<laughs> if it does, it does belong. So that's pretty easy. You can tell just by looking at the number. But there are some sets that have a more complicated definition, and you can't tell just by looking at the number whether or not it belongs. And so we're going to talk about a particular set that's called the Mandelbrot set. This was discovered in the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, named after the person who really discovered this, Benoit Mandelbrot. He was a, a math guy and a computer guy. He worked at IBM. Uh, this set is defined according to this little formula that, that you see right here, where, where uh, it's the set of all numbers, C. C is a number that is potentially part of the Mandelbrot set. We're, we're testing it. For which this other number, Z, remains small according to this little formula. And it looks very complicated, but it's really not. I'll take you through it. Uh, the, the little n just means that uh, that's a particular value of z. n plus 1 is the next value of z. So there's lots of values of z. There's a sequence. And if that sequence of z stays small, like if it's all zeros, that would be small, then the other number, c, is part of the Mandelbrot set. On the other hand, if the sequence of z gets very big, if it goes one, two, a hundred, a million, a billion, then C is not part of the Mandelbrot set. And, and we'll, we'll do a couple of examples to, to let this sink in. It's pretty straightforward, really. So we're going to ask, is the number one part of the Mandelbrot set? So C equals one, okay? And we're going to plug that into our formula then. So we have Z squared plus one, because that's the number we're testing. That becomes the new value of Z. Now, the first value of Z is zero by definition. So that's the first value. So we plug that in, and we have 0 squared, which is 0, plus 1 is 1. Yeah, 0 squared plus 1 is 1, right? Even the common core folks got that one, right? Okay. <laughs> so that's the next value of z, okay? And what we'll do is we'll put that 1 back into the formula. That's the new value of z. So now we have 1 squared, which is 1, plus 1 is Oh, my gosh. So I'm watching the chat since I'm watching this with you, and someone picked it up. Remember when we did that thing of 3x plus 1, the 4, 2, 1. I want you guys to remember that because, see, people don't put things together. I just want to um, make it clear of how this is going to come forward. When you see the image, remember that show from months ago. Here we go. Two, Okay. You plug that back in, so we have 2 squared is 4, 2 times 2 is 4, plus 1 is 5, okay, you're getting this, you put it back in, 5 squared, 25, plus 1 is 26, okay, we put that back in, 26 squared is a, a big number, and you put that back in, okay, you see, now you see what's happening here? Is the sequence of Z staying small? No. So is the number 1 part of the Mandelbrot set? No, because it has to stay small for it to belong. You see? So it's, it's, we'll, do, we'll do one more example just to make it clear. Uh, is the number negative 1 part of the Mandelbrot set? So this time C equals negative 1. We'll plug that in. So it's going to be Z squared minus 1 is the new value of Z. Z always starts as 0. So we have 0 squared, which is 0, minus 1 is negative 1. We put that back in. Negative 1 squared is positive 1, right? Because a negative times a negative is a positive. Minus 1 is 0. We put that back in. 0 squared. Well, this looks familiar. 0 squared minus 1 is negative 1. Put that back. Oh, wait a minute. See what's happening there? 0, negative 1, 0, negative 1, 0, negative 1. Interesting. And you can see it'll do that forever. 
Is Z staying small? Yeah. So is the number negative one part of the Mandelbrot set? Yes. Okay, you got it? Pretty easy, really. It's tedious, but it's easy, right? And you could check any number that way. All you could do is run it through that formula, and the sequence of Z will either stay small, in which case the number is part of the Mandelbrot set, or the sequence of Z will get big, in which case it's not part of the Mandelbrot set. And you could run that through, and it's easy as pie. It's just kind of tedious. There's one more complication, and then we get to the really cool stuff. The other complication is that the Mandelbrot set also includes what are called complex and imaginary numbers. Okay, so in, an imaginary number is a number that when you square it, you get a negative number. And that's a little hard for us to understand, and so they call them imaginary. It's just a name. Uh, <laughs> I hate that they have that name because it makes it sound like they don't exist. You know, they're fabricated. No, they, they, they do exist. Imaginary numbers do exist. And to add insult to injury, the numbers that are not imaginary, they call real. But it's just, that's just terminology. They're, both are equally true, let's put it that way. But how do we have a number that times itself is negative? And, and it's represented by a lowercase i. That's the, the kind of the primary imaginary number when i times i is negative 1. How, how do we make sense of that? After all, uh, imaginary numbers are not positive because a positive number squared is positive. And, and yet, the imaginary number times itself is negative. Imaginary numbers are not negative because a negative number squared is also positive. And imaginary numbers are not zero because zero squared is zero. Weird. So we have a number that's not positive, it's not negative, and it's not zero. And that leaves us kind of scratching our heads a little bit. We have trouble with that. Well, I got news for you. Not everything in this universe is intuitive. <laughs> If you've ever had a class in quantum mechanics, you know, the universe doesn't work always the way that we expect it to. So I wanted to stay here. So the math principle, as we know, is a positive number times a positive number gives us a positive product. A negative times a negative gives us a positive product. A zero times a zero gives us simply nothing. Think if you apply that to life. A good deed and a good deed give us good deeds. A good deed, a negative deed, and another negative deed that comes with it provides a positive one. I just concept think. And if you do nothing and you times out with more nothing, it's absolutely nothing. But in essence, there is something that can amplify or be duplicated to give negative. Now, that can't be defined as a positive or negative or zero, but an imaginary number that we kind of say, oh, yeah, well, there, if, it ex if positive and positive is positive and negative times negative is positive, then positive times negative is negative. Two negatives make a positive. So what times itself would make a negative? You need the opposites to give you a negative. And all polars, both positives by itself and negative by itself, give you positive. So an imaginary number will give you a negative, which is huh, weird because it doesn't apply to rules. But like you said, this is the broccoli. This is where we get into the good stuff. You know, our intuition really is based on experience. And... The fact is most adults don't have experience with imaginary numbers, and so they seem strange. But it's just, it's just a matter of experience. 
when you were a little kid, negative numbers probably didn't make a lot of sense, right? You, you know, I can have one apple, I can have two apples. How can I have negative two apples? That doesn't make sense. How can you have less than nothing? You get a little bit older, you get a bank account, suddenly negative numbers make a lot of sense, right? Yes, I can have less than nothing. <laughs> well, imaginary numbers are the same way. You gain a little experience and you find, yes, there are numbers that when you square them, you get a negative, but they're not positive. They're not negative, and they're not zero. How do we make sense of that? One way to do it is if you consider a number line. So here we have a number line. Now, the positive numbers are to the right of zero along, along that number line. The negative numbers are to the left of zero along that number line. So how do we represent a number that's not positive, not negative, and not zero? Well, you put it up above the number line like that. It's not on the number line. It's on a different axis. And by multiplying i by the other real numbers, you can have all kinds of imaginary numbers. And you can think of them as being on a different axis. So the real numbers are along this axis, the imaginary numbers are along that axis. And that makes sense. You can see that the imaginary number, it's not positive because it's not to the right of zero. It's not negative because it's not to the left of zero. And yet it's not zero. That kind of makes sense. And then you can, have, you can also have numbers that are called complex and they're off axis. They're called complex because they have a real part and an imaginary part. But it's one number with two parts. And, the, and usually the real part is represented by the x-axis, and then the imaginary part is represented by the y-axis. And so you can plot any number in a plane by, by those two components, the, the real component being the x and the imaginary component being the y. That's kind of neat. I can represent any number on a plane. Uh, very convenient. So the Mandelbrot set also includes these imaginary and complex numbers. And the only thing you need to remember, they, they obey all the ordinary rules of algebra. It's just that when you multiply i by itself, you get negative 1. That's the only thing you have to remember. Everything else, it's just ordinary algebra. So what we can do then is we can make a map, because I'm trying to figure out if there's a pattern to the numbers that belong to the Mandelbrot set. And it turns out there is. But it's Wait till you see the patterns. It's not obvious, right? Because you can't tell just by looking at a number whether it's going to belong or not. You have to run it through that formula, and that's kind of tedious. But in the 1980s, computers were starting to get fast enough where they could iterate that formula a number of times, and they could analyze to see whether Z is getting big or staying small. And so what we can do is we can have the computer check all these different points, and we'll see if there's a pattern to the Mandelbrot set. And so we'll take the points that belong to the Mandelbrot set, and we'll color those black. That's arbitrary. That's the way Benoit Mandelbrot did it, and we follow his example. So, and, and you have the computer check more points, and you find that all those points right there belong to the Mandelbrot set. When you run it through that formula, Z stays small. And then the points that do not belong, we'll color those red, or some other color. It doesn't really matter. And so we already checked the point 1. We found that the number 1 does not belong to the Mandelbrot set, so it gets colored red. And had we checked these other points, we would find that they do not belong. And so you see, as you plot more and more of these points, a pattern starts to emerge. What's it going to look like? Well, you have the computer run through thousands and thousands of points. You have the computer check each one of those numbers, and a pattern emerges. And the pattern looks like this. It's really interesting and, and unexpected. Nobody was expecting that when you made a map of the Mandelbrot set, it would look like that. Remarkable. And so it, let me remind you again what you have here. It's just a, it's a plot of the points that do or do not belong to the Mandelbrot set. The points that are colored black do belong. The points that are colored red 
do not. And I even shaded it. So points that are almost on the Mandelbrot set, but not quite, are bright yellow. So I wanted to share a story. So um, I remember when I was in the first grade, my teacher's name was Mrs. Vaz. She was a die hard Mets fan, like my third grade teacher, Mrs. Jackson, who made us watch a movie for the Civil War. <laughs> anyway, she was um, making the assumption that, you know, she said, let's pretend that the whole world, all the planets, they're civilizations. How would you um, draw a flag of planet Earth? Right. And now that we learned about the solar system, like how would you do it? So everyone was drawing like people, the house, the mom, we're first grade, right? I drew something almost identical to that. I put the earth with all the little planets. The sun was at the tip. The moon was on the other side. It looked just like this. Now, Mrs. Vaz was like, this is really weird because this is a real pattern. Why did you think? Well, it looks like um, the planets going around and then um, the earth. And she goes, yeah, but that looks like a heart, not like the earth. And I said, well, you know, the earth isn't like really round. I remember telling her that and her just looking at me like <laughs> the fuck. <laughs> right. Um, and then my neighbor, Brendan, who also joined the army, by the way, it was really weird because most of the kids that I went to elementary school, the nerds, they all joined the military. So maybe because they were all in the gifted uh, Judge Charles J. Valone school. But anyway, um, you know, I remember that I drew this without knowing what it was. I just I just thought I would bring it up. But the colors that I used were blue, uh, yellow, um, pink and black. <laughs> So I just wanted to point that out. You know, it was it was it was so weird because like on the screen here, as you see the tuck in, I had made it look more like a heart, like, you know, that had a butt at the bottom, too. It was weird. And then these were all like planets. That was the sun and that was the moon. Kid you not. That was my Earth flag. Anyway, let's continue. As you can see, this is quite interesting. Wait till you get a closer look. And so, so it's, it's kind of shaded. So, so if, if, if the, the sequence, sequence of Z get, goes to infinity really quick, it's dark red. And if it, goes to, if, it, if it goes to infinity slowly, it's kind of a bright yellow. So it kind of, you don't have to do it that way, but it increases the contrast, makes it easier to see. So now we don't have to run it through that formula because the computer's already done the hard work for us. We can look and we can see that the number uh, negative one, you can see it's part of the Mandelbrot set. You can see that the number zero is... Had we run it through the formula, Z would stay bound. And so half I is part of the Mandelbrot set. So I'm going to remove the, uh, the, the axes now because it turns out the shape is remarkably interesting and unexpected. And it'll turn out to have a lot of beauty in it as well. The shape itself is, I mean, this is a mathematical plot. I guess we'd expect it would have some mathematical properties to it. But everyone was surprised by the properties it has. The main shape that looks kind of like a heart that's called a cardioid. And a cardioid is what happens when you take a circle and you take uh, your pencil on it and roll it around another circle of equal size. The shape you'll get is a cardioid. And you can see that, sure enough, the, the main part of the Mandelbrot set is a perfect cardioid. All the other shapes that are growing off of it are circles. All these perfect circles uh, attached to the perimeter of the Mandelbrot set. And then you see some other features, like these little tendrils that grow off of it and a spike over on the left, kind of that, that juts out. That's kind of interesting. What's that all about? Well, 
The interesting thing is we can zoom in on this because we can have the computer plot it at higher resolution. And we find that this shape has some really interesting mathematical properties to it. You notice that uh, that top circle there, it's got a circle on top of it, another one on top of it on smaller and smaller scales. And it goes out and forms this little tree. Uh, and it's got three uh, stems to it, uh, including the, the trunk. So it's got a trunk and two stems for a total of three branches. You see that there? Now the next one to the left branches into five. Can you see that? It, I mean, it's kind of small, but you can see the five branches there. The next one is seven, nine, 11, 13, 15. It's all the odd numbers. And by the way, they don't stop. They go to infinity. There's an infinite number of them. They get smaller and smaller though. And so you have to zoom in more. But all, so somehow the Mandelbrot set knows how to count. It's kind of remarkable. And then on the other side, you have the odds and the evens. You have all the numbers there in terms of the number of, of branches. Now, it's remarkable enough that they have branches at all because who would have thought that when you run numbers through that little formula, you get that shape? It's remarkable. Nobody was expecting that. And it's even more remarkable that it has the ability, apparently, to count in terms of the number of tendrils that grow off of each, uh, each bud there. And, of course, uh, you can take two of those numbers, like 5 and 3. Now, 5 plus 3 is 8, okay? And it turns out that the bud in between those two has 8 tendrils. Interesting, and that's true of all of them, both on the left side and the right. The, the bud in between the two adds the number of tendrils on each one. So not only does the Mandelbrot set know how to count, it knows how to add. Interesting, and, and strange, and remarkable. Well, let's go back out over the, take a look at the overall shape here. So again, you have that cardioid, that's the heart-shaped structure, circles growing off of it. And then on the, uh, on the left side over there, you got this kind of spike that goes out. And you see there's this little bump on the end of the spike. So let's take a look and see what that looks like. So we'll zoom in on it. And that little bump turns out it looks like the entire Mandelbrot set. It's a, it's a mini Mandelbrot set. And it's almost identical to the parent, except it's got extra spikes growing off of it. But the basic shape's the same. It's got the cardioid and the circles. And oh, it has a little spike growing off of it too, with a little bump. What could that be? Well, let's zoom in on that. And, oh, interesting. Absolutely fat, and it's got extra spikes growing off of it. And that's got a little bud. How about that? Now, of course, you could do that literally forever. And it, it can, there's an infinite number of baby versions built into the Mandelbrot set on smaller and smaller scales. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And take a look at how small this is compared to the original when we zoom back out here. Look at how tiny it is. Isn't that remarkable? And, and the fact that it repeats infinitely and it doesn't lose complexity, it actually gains it each time you get more extra spikes growing off of it. Very remarkable. Well, to anticipate my uh, conclusion in this, I'm going to suggest to you that this shape tells us something about the way God thinks. God's understanding is infinite. Numbers are an aspect of God's mind. And just so you know, possibilities are infinite. So every single decision we all make affects every single person, regardless of how you see it. You've heard of the butterfly effect. You've heard of these things. But this is just how infinite and perfect the code is. This is why you are able to use actual decodes to predict with very good and precise, I would say, pinpoints in time 
that are fixed. You may get some things wrong because the possibilities of these little points that you keep going and going and going are constant. But this is how it starts to make sense to you. God is responsible for numbers. And so it makes sense in the Christian worldview that when we, when we explore and study numbers, we, should, we, we find intelligence in them. We find evidence of patterns. And not only, just, not only intelligence, but infinite intelligence, because this thing repeats infinitely. A structure that repeats itself on smaller and smaller scales is called a fractal. So the Mandelbrot set is one example of a fractal. There are other types of fractals. There are other sections of the Mandelbrot set that are fractal. We could zoom in, for example, on one of these little uh, tendril features here and zoom in on that. And you'd say, well, that's interesting. We'll just, you think what's going to stop at some point, right? It, eventually it'll even out and you'll get, but it just keeps going. It's infinitely wiggly, you see. That little, it's wiggling around like that. And you zoom in on it and it keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. It's just mesmerizing this. this watch this thing and see the, 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 the scale here. And it gives you a little taste of, of what God's mind is like to be able to think infinitely. Almost like the tree of life with so many possibilities in every single branch calculated to perfection in order to bring the grand design together. Every single one perpetuating on another. Again, what I do here, you're going to be like, Tori, I'm in Idaho. I'm your archivist. It does not affect me. If you take you know, a left when you exit your building rather than a right. And it's like, yeah, but I'm possibly this, this tendril here that affects all of these. And these over here will affect the, the curvature of these and these, and then you could be over here, but you're going to feel the, the decision that I make in some shape or form. Uh, and this is why predictive analytics are so difficult because the possibilities are endless and you must be able to calculate. Like I said, humans can't be treated as absolute values. They should be treated as imaginary numbers or nodes. We can only process just a little bit of information at a time, but God's mind is, is truly infinite. So one of the interesting areas to explore, and, and what, what I want to do now is just kind of spend some time exploring this shape that exists in the mind of God and has existed in the mind of God uh, from creation that was only discovered in the 1980s. And we can zoom in, for example, on this cusp between the main cardioid and the disc. And we find it's called, they call it the Valley of the Seahorses because you see over on the right side, it looks like seahorses. They're upside down because the way we've zoomed in on them here. Now, the colors are arbitrary. I can make them whatever I want and we'll change them every now and then just to keep things interesting. But just keep in mind, Black always represents numbers that do belong to the Mandelbrot set, and then colors represent those that do not belong to the Mandelbrot set. And bright colors are very close to being on the Mandelbrot set, but not quite a part of it. So let's zoom in on one of these seahorse structures over here. You see it looks like an upside-down seahorse. Isn't that fascinating? Quite beautiful. And I, I need to explain a little bit about what this means, because if, if the points are very bright, that means it's very close to the Mandelbrot set. And you might look and say, but yeah, that bright hub doesn't look like it's anywhere close to it. It is. It's just you need to, you need to realize that there is a very thin black thread that's, that's wiggling around and making that, that shape, you see. It's just so thin, it's thinner than the pixels that, that the computer can plot. So in other words, the things that don't fit in the grand design still can fit in the grand design. If they're white, they're closest to the grand design, the original Mandelbrot. 
Are you getting this? And those that are outliers, I don't know, like evil or semi-evil or good that want control or, 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 or decisions, good, bad, maybe some, they all turn into themselves until you can zoom into there and find one of these guys in the end. Regardless, nothing can stop what's coming and it's back to where it was supposed to be. So everywhere you see structure like that, there is very thin black thread that's, that's, that's winding around and, uh, and creating that wonderful shape. So uh, really quite remarkable. And who would have expected that that little formula, Z squared plus C, when you run numbers through it and you find out which ones belong, you get that. I think it's amazing. Well, let's zoom in and find out what this uh, seahorse is made of. It's uh, the central hub there looks kind of like a kind of like a spider web type structure, right? You got the spokes and the, the rims around there. And I found from experience, you can zoom in on the center of that till your heart's content and it doesn't really change very much. It goes on infinitely. So again, the, the, the infiniteness of the, the mind of God. And so I thought, well, okay, let's go off to the side and figure out what these strands of the spider web are made of. So let's go off to the side here. And we find that the strands are made of more spider webs. It's kind of interesting. And we zoom in a little bit more and you find that there's sort of two hubs there. You see the bright yellow hubs. And then in the middle, it goes from two to four. And as we zoom in, it'll go from four to eight to 16, 32, 64, it doubles each time. And if you notice the polarities, but in the middle, what do you have? The same origin source, the same code is embedded in everything. So as, as, as you zoom into these that are infinite possibilities, infinite, these, this is everybody coming together in one grand design to infinity. And as we zoom in on that central hub, we find, oh, isn't that interesting? You see going from four to eight to 16 and so on. And in the middle, of course, you have another baby Mandelbrot set. Uh, quite fascinating, really. Uh, and again, there's an infinite number of these babies built into the, the overall shape, which I think is amazing. And again, look at how small this is compared to the overall shape. As we And remember, that one then leads into that big overall shape that has infinite overall seahorse shapes that have infinite, infinite. And in the middle, it'll have the big grand ending to only continue from that fixed point in time according to the original code. We zoom back out. It's just a tiny little infinitesimal. And we could have zoomed in on any one of those strands. I just picked one at random. And, and there it is. So pretty remarkable. Let's go back to that valley. Now, the valley of seahorses is on the right. On the left, we find the valley of the double spirals. And I'll zoom in on one of those now. This is my favorite part of the Mandelbrot set. I think they're very beautiful. They remind me of uh, spiral galaxies, actually, which is an astronomer I really appreciate. Uh, God apparently likes spirals because he's built a lot of them into nature. And he's built them into math, which is remarkable. Who would have guessed that there would be a spiral, a beautiful spiral, built into that little formula, Z squared plus C, or rather built into numbers when we run them through that formula. Uh, pretty amazing. It's a double spiral because there's actually two strands that wrap around each other. If, if you trace one strand, you'll find that it, there's a strand in between. Uh, and so it is a double spiral, as are spiral galaxies, by the way. 
And uh, let's zoom in on that a little bit. And again, I've found you can zoom in on the center forever. So we'll zoom in on the side. And you find, uh, you find the spider web type structures. You find more double spirals. And you find a new structure. I call them bow ties. They're kind of in the middle. You see it looks like a, kind of like a little bow tie, right? And it's got two double spirals that intersect in the middle. Quite beautiful. Again, what you're seeing here, the Mandelbrot set, it's just incredibly wiggly. It's so wiggly. It's making these wonderful shapes. And that's what the, the, the points that are very bright are very close to that thin black thread that's wiggling around and making all these wonderful shapes. Infinite possibilities. Now think about it. For one dimension is like a dot, right? Just a dot. Two dimensions is, you know, a line. Three dimensions is what you are without time, existing timelessly. Four dimensions is you, a three-dimensional figure with, a, with time included. So then the question lies in what is the fifth and the sixth? And you're looking at it. IBM computers didn't make this up. They calculated based on a retroactive formula that they had from a computer. It's quite fascinating because Robert Brooks and Matelsky uh, in 1978, which was the year that I was born, uh, were part of um, uh, a group of people called uh, Kleinian groups. It's um, people trying to kind of, um, uh, how do I say it? Um, Klein and uh, Poincaré. Um, in the late 1800s were indeed the people that discovered um, certain math that they couldn't um, figure out. And um, they were called Klein in groups um, after Klein. Um, I think his name was like, oh, yeah, it's a, oh, yeah. You got to be sly as a cat. Um, Felix. Felix, that's how I remember his name. So it's so weird because it is um, discrete math that someone found and tried to make sense of. And as the years progressed in reverse engineering, all they could do was plot it because they wanted to find the end. They have the formula, but don't understand kind of like 3x plus 1, which totally ties into this too. Unfortunately, some group of mathematicians don't look at both things on how they're infinite. So, it's quite interesting. We're just going to play a few more minutes of this. As you see the spin-offs that occur from the things that are outliers. And in the end, it always comes back to the origin. But look at how different they are because they spawn more. So I guess, you know, one of these here could be P. 
people that had, you know, here's the polarized choice. It all comes back to the plan in the end, right? This, I would say, is at birth, being smaller. And so a choice is made, well, more high above, ending and beginning with the same code. But as you can see, it's attempts constantly ended in the code, right? Because in each one of these, there's more. They look like little elephants. I think he actually mentions that too, if I remember. I haven't watched this in like years. but um, And I was so fascinated. I was like, wow, he totally explained it perfectly because he's explaining it from the way he researched it. And that was awesome. But as you can see, these are all infinite possibilities. So let's pretend here they put you on the relay. These would be the infinite possibilities until they terminate each one in itself to something like this, right? It would terminate. Each one of these little spirals would terminate into something like this are the infinite possibilities of what the outcomes would be. So if you were able to manipulate and step out of your fourth dimensional time and be able to bend it, if you hopped from here to here, it would be relatively the same path with a polarization happening here and then another one there and another one there. And it would be quite similar. It's only when you jump from there to like there that it's completely different. Different decisions lead to different outcomes. But in the end, they all terminate with the same code. So we'll zoom in on one of these bow ties. And we find that it's, again, you have the, the two double spirals. We zoomed in on the double spiral and we found it's made up of multiple double spirals. And they go from two to four to eight to 16 as we zoom in on the center there. And in the middle, you find another Many Mandelbrot set. You're not surprised this time, but uh, there it is. And it, quite beautiful. Uh, who would have imagined that such beauty would be built into numbers? Well, in the Christian worldview, that makes sense. We serve a God who is beautiful, who makes beautiful things. And when we examine the way God thinks about numbers, which is what mathematics really is, we find it's immensely beautiful. Who would have thought? The Christians would have thought. So the other valley we can zoom in on that's kind of interesting, they call it the Valley of the Elephants, and that's the main cusp on the main cardioid there. Mathematicians like to give fun names to these things, but you can see it kind of does look like elephants marching one after the other. You see the elephants there, especially on the bottom. Now on the top, they're, they're hanging from the ceiling, but uh, if we zoom in on a couple of these elephants, you can see that elephants marching after each other with the trunk all curled up. Isn't that interesting? And you see each one of those circles has an elephant growing on top of it. And there's an infinite number of those circles. They get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the elephant's trunks get more and more twisted as you go further in, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so what happens when we zoom in on one of these elephants? Well, let's zoom in on the trunk, because that's a spiral, and I like spirals. Now, this is a single spiral. So it's one strand wrapped around itself. And as you zoom in on that, every now and then PowerPoint just says, I give up. So we'll zoom in on these strands. And again, you find the spiderweb type structures. You find single spirals now, because we zoomed in on a single spiral. 
And as you go in even further, you find bow ties, but the bow ties are made of the single spirals this time. And what happens when we zoom in on the center of that bow tie? What do you think we're going to get? Keep going here. There we go. Lo and behold. And right the four middle, corners right there. Another baby version. Let's get even closer there. Look at that. That's stunning. And notice that the stuff that's growing around the perimeter of this little baby version, uh, it's it, you've got spirals and all these other stuff because the baby version inherits the characteristics of the section of the parent that it grows off of. So we zoomed in on a spiral and we get lots of spirals around the exterior of the baby. And, and notice that on the spiral, by the way, it's, you know, it's flipped around too. And it's because we've zoomed in on the spiral. So it's been, it's been rotated, but you notice it has a little spike there on its, on its right side. And there's a little bump on that. What do you think that is? Of course, it's another baby version, but the more you zoom in, the more computing power it takes. And so the computer gets slower and slower and, and at some point, you say, I give up. So in other words, infinite possibilities. Oh, thank you for the rants, you guys. And Red Pill Ass. Yeah, I'm, I, I feel for you. I, um, <laughs> I'm probably going to be there too. Um, heal up really quick. Now, while people give them fancy names of fractals and how it makes beautiful, intricate shapes that we see in Indian culture. Huh, so weird, right? Um, what they fail to realize is that what this is, is a perfect mathematics, perfect code, code that leads back to the same design, no matter what. And therefore it goes back to, haven't you learned already, no matter how much you try to polarize the four corners will all lead back to him. And that is what it is. Nothing that you do doesn't infect, infect, affect another. And in fact, of course, this is why psychological war is so amazing. In infant stages as we are, we're at the point where we end up at that terminus of that Mandelbrot right there. So I thought I would show you this to understand that math tells you more than anything else someone can. That it is all perfect and it's done perfectly and it cannot be replicated. And this is why they have no command over time and space because they don't understand it. And the more you try to make sense of it without accepting it, the more <laughs> you lose your mind and way. Now, having said that, let's start shifting into news. Something really weird happened today. So I was talking with someone um, that I simply adore. And we were having a conversation and I was in the car and suddenly I hear them go, what's that? And I'm like, uh, what? What's that? What is that? And I'm like, oh, maybe they're talking to their dog, right? Because I heard nothing. Are you messing with me? What is that? And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> I'm driving. I don't know. Are you talking to me or are you talk who are you talking to? 
apparently our communication was intercepted, but that person was the only one that could hear something. And that person heard a something like a recording that was uh, in a loop saying really, really dangerous things. Dangerous things like, you know, you fought your wars overseas, will come to America. You know, if you, you know, see the police or the military not obey their oaths, you should kill them all. Like it was on repeat. I didn't hear it. The other person on the end was hearing it. And I was just like, we, uh, what? Write it down. Now it sounded like something familiar. And I thought, you know, I think it's about time we um, actually talk about this. And the reason I say that is because Kamala Harris came out this week telling people that they must fight like hell, that they must fight like hell. She also told mayors, oh, for, you know, to be able to kill babies. She also told mayors that they must get hard with weapons. And they're hoping that the Second Amendment case that SCOTUS has will go their way. So, you know, after having this conversation with my friend and being confused, good thing I had another phone because as my friend was listening to it, I was recording the audio in my car and my car driving to show that I wasn't listening to anything and I couldn't hear what she could hear. So I left it and it prompted me. I did tell you this yesterday. Movies, TV series, songs, stories don't come out of nowhere. They're all very well scripted and depicted. And what this person heard with some really weird audio to loop it reminded them of something terrifying. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this movie we're going to be referencing, but I remember when it came, I know my daughter asked, I think I've mentioned it before. I had my daughter mention it once. Oh, I want to watch number two or number three. And I was like, we're not watching that. That is the most horrific thing ever. So let's start and understand exactly what it is. And what's weird is there's a how-to survival guide too. Why would you have that? Take a listen. Imagine a world where once a year the rules are turned upside down and lawlessness reigns. People are free, free, even encouraged, to act out their darkest desires. Otherwise, law-abiding citizens terrorize their neighbors, vandalizing, thieving, even raping and murdering with abandon. If that sounds to you like something straight out of a horror movie, well, you're not entirely wrong. The blockbuster horror franchise The Purge did steal a borrow its terrifying plot from a very real historical purge ritual. The ancient festival of Saturnalia was the real life The Purge, and the movies have nothing on the real deal. In case you've been living under a rock for the last seven years, The Purge is a wildly popular horror movie franchise set in a dystopian future world where for one day a year lawlessness rules. During The Purge, all crimes are legal and people are encouraged to satisfy their darkest desires. For 24 hours, chaos reigns as friends and neighbors turn on each other 
and otherwise orderly citizens commit robbery, home invasion, rape, assault, and murder with abandon. If the concept of a lawless purge sounds to you like something that could only come out of the modern movie industry, then you might be surprised to learn that the idea is actually rooted in a very real ancient tradition. The Roman festival of Saturnalia goes back thousands of years, and some aspects of the celebration bear an unsettling resemblance to the film's premise. The jolliest and most popular holiday in ancient Rome, the festival of Saturnalia was a week-long celebration where the only rule was that there were no rules. Everything was fair game during Saturnalia and people could indulge their every whim without fear of consequences. Saturnalia is mentioned in Roman sources as far back as the 5th century BC, but it was likely inspired by even older traditions. Pagan farmers had long been celebrating the end of the darkness of winter and the coming of the longer days of spring, with feasts and festivals honoring the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. As the Roman Empire spread throughout Europe, this pagan solstice tradition was incorporated into the Roman culture and mythology, and it evolved into the festival of Saturnalia. In keeping with its roots as a farmer's festival, the early Roman version of Saturnalia was associated with the religious cult of Saturn, the Roman god of agriculture. The Latin word satus means to sow or seed, and we can also thank Saturn for the name of everyone's favorite day of the week, Saturday. Early Saturnalia lasted only one day and was celebrated with feasts and sacrifices at Saturn's temple. The Temple of Saturn, in the northwest corner of Rome's Forum, was the ceremonial center of Saturnalia festivals. To kick off the celebrations, a young pig would be sacrificed in the temple, and the statue of Saturn, which normally had its feet bound with wool, would be ceremoniously untied to signify his liberation and to free him to join in on the fun and mischief. Early Saturnalia was a time of celebration and indulgence, but it was not yet the ancient purge that it would later become. Things would soon get much darker. As the Roman Empire grew, the ruling class began to realize that festivals and celebrations were a valuable tool for controlling and pacifying the masses, and Saturnalia underwent yet another transformation. Saturnalia was on the verge of becoming the real-life purge. By the year 120 AD, the festival of Saturnalia had grown from a single day of feasting to an entire week of festivities, from December 17th to the 25th. As the celebrations grew longer, rulers began granting holiday reprieve from certain social norms, and before long, Saturnalia Saturnalia had become a week-long free-for-all. Under later Roman rulers, Saturnalia was a time when the populace was encouraged to act out their every desire without fear of retribution. So it's not surprising that it was the most popular holiday in ancient Rome. The celebration wasn't an entirely benevolent gesture, though. It was thought that this holiday from the rules would give people a chance to release any pent-up resentment, rage, and frustration on each other, leading to lower crime rates during the rest of the year, and a lower chance that the people would revolt against their rulers. And since it was not uncommon for the celebrations to take Take on a violent edge, it would also give the people a taste of what life would be like without law and order. For the ruling class of Romans, Saturnalia was a not-so-subtle reminder to the populace that life was better under their rule. During the week-long celebration, all seriousness was barred, dress codes were relaxed, and people dressed in loud, bright colors. Businesses were closed and all work was cancelled. Executions were postponed, and rulers refrained from declaring war during Saturnalia. The courts were closed, which effectively meant that you either participated in the festivities or you were on your own. Even slaves were freed from their duties and allowed to participate in the festivities. One of the most exciting elements of the Saturnalia celebrations was the complete reversal of the social order. Children were encouraged to disobey parents and cause mayhem. The wealthy were expected to feed and pay rent for the poor. Masters even traded places with their slaves, swapping clothing and places at the table. 
If you were lucky enough to be chosen as the Saturnalian monarch, you would be in for an extra special treat. The lowlier members of the household, usually the children and slaves, would throw dice or hide coins and other small objects into a cake to choose the lucky winner. The person that got the lucky piece of cake would be treated like a king or a queen for an entire week. The Saturnalian monarch would eat like a king, dress like a queen, and was the lord of misrule, responsible for causing mischief, insulting guests, and reigning over chaos. Families would decorate their homes for the Saturnalia celebrations with laurel wreaths and green trees lit up with candles. Friends would exchange small gifts like dolls, caged birds, and candles to signal the return of light after the darkness of winter. On the final day of Saturnalia, friends would exchange small terracotta figurines called sigillaria, small dolls with movable limbs that might have been meant as stand-ins for the human sacrifices in the more primitive traditions that existed long before Saturnalia. While there were plenty of wholesome traditions, Saturnalia was really all about one thing, partying. Most of the more serious citizens looked down on the inebriated masses, but most Romans looked forward to letting go of their inhibitions and indulging in a week of debauchery. For most, it was relatively harmless fun. The streets would take on a Mardi Gras atmosphere, and the drinking, gambling, singing, and dancing in the streets would carry on until the early morning hours every night of the week. Of course, when the alcohol is flowing, things can easily get out of hand. And during Saturnalia, they usually did. Drunken injuries and even accidental deaths were to be expected during the week-long binge. Emboldened by booze and a lack of consequences, partiers accomplished all sorts of mischief. From vandalizing homes and public buildings to petty theft and nasty pranks, no festival dedicated to indulging one's deepest desires would be complete without plenty of drunken fighting and, uh, fornicating. Partying and mischief might have been the mainstays of Saturnalia, but the festival wasn't all fun and games. Just like in the movies, when bad behavior is encouraged and there are no consequences, things can quickly take a dark turn. Drunken fights would frequently devolve into outright murder. Saturnalia was the perfect time to exact revenge on someone who had wronged you or to intimidate or even eliminate a rival. Thieves would take advantage of the celebratory atmosphere and lack of law in order to burglarize the homes of partygoers. Even those whose deepest desires were truly deplorable had free reign to indulge them during Saturnalia, and unfortunately brutal rape and murder were the unfortunate consequences of this holiday from the rules. With the courts closed and law and order off duty, there was nowhere to turn for help. It was every man for himself, and law-abiding Romans just hoping to enjoy a well-deserved break from work were at the mercy of the inebriated masses. Of course, this is exactly what the Roman rulers had in mind. A nice little reminder that life is better under their laws than without them. And it's not like this was just a few bad apples. The officials were in on it, too. Early sources shed light on a particularly gruesome Saturnalia ritual. In a horror movie version of the tradition of the mock king of the house, communities would select a special victim, um, winner, who would be king or queen for a day. They would drink and feast them like royalty during the day and indulge other pleasures all through the night before they were brutally slaughtered on the steps of Saturn's temple, a sacrifice to the god and a symbol of the destruction of the forces of darkness and evil. The conversion of Emperor Constantine to Christianity in 312 AD spelled the beginning of the end for Saturnalia, as Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. The church moved to ban any pagan rituals that might threaten its authority. Saturnalia didn't disappear altogether, it remained a popular carnival as late as 449 AD, but its place as the most popular Roman holiday was usurped by a new Christian holiday, celebrating the birth of their savior, a little thing called Christmas. Huh. Between December 25th date, the greenery decorations, and the exchanging of gifts, 
we almost have to wonder if Christmas might have uh, borrowed a few traditions from the ancient Romans. Saturnalia was not the only ancient celebration that gave people a holiday from the rules. There are many parallels between the ancient Roman and Greek cultures, and this is no exception. The Greek festival of Cronia was remarkably similar to the Roman festival of Saturnalia. Kronos was the Greek god of agriculture, and his festival, Cronia, originated as a farmer's harvest festival and evolved into a tradition of inverting the social order. All work was canceled, and for one night, slaves were allowed to dine with their masters. Ancient sources have noted that the celebrating slaves made riotous noise during their feast and time off, creating chaos throughout the city. The ancient Egyptians had the Tech Festival, a feast of drunkenness, which was a celebration of the time that, according to Egyptian myth, humanity was saved from a bloodthirsty god by beer. Yeah, beer. So it's not surprising that this holiday, which was most popular around 1500 BC, was celebrated by getting rip-roaring drunk and passing out in the temple. Now that you know the Purge movies were inspired by the ancient festival of Saturnalia, you might be wondering if something like that could actually happen today. Well, you might say that it already has, kind of. In 2016, an Indiana teen was arrested for kidnapping a woman and was later charged with killing two people. He claims to have been inspired by the movies and he told his girlfriend, you better go on Facebook and watch the videos of me shooting people. I purge every night now. Okay, so that was one insane person, but could we ever see a world in which purges are a real thing? And could that possibly be a good thing? The justification behind a purge, both the movie version and the real Saturnalia one, was to give the population a release valve, which would theoretically improve the economy and reduce violence and crime during the rest of the year. According to Forbes magazine, though, a purge would only serve to increase the socioeconomic inequality that is already rampant in our society, since only the wealthy could afford to protect themselves. Even worse, it would increase habituation towards violent behavior and destroy the economy as the insurance industry, real estate market, and small businesses collapse. Perhaps this is a tradition best left to the past. Once again, it turns out that real life was even more unbelievable than the movies. The ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia was one part real life the purge, one part jolly Christmassy celebration, and a whole lot of chaos. Now go check out how did a whole village disappear, or this other one instead. Thanks for watching, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. So weird. You know, this reminds me of when I was a kid. <laughs> I was, for the first time in Greece, right before, it was in February, before Easter. And um, everyone uh, <laughs> participated in the Carnavale. And I remember asking my grandfather, what is the point of all this? I mean, they're doing parades, people are dressing, they're all going drinking, everyone's enjoying themselves. And carnevale means to remove meat. And he goes, well, you know, we, in our religion, right before, um, you know, the great Lent for the resurrection, it is tradition that on the Thursday before the clean Monday, we eat a lot of meat and we must smoke it. And there's, um, there are all these animals slaughtered and it's called Tsiknopemti. Tsiknopemti means Thursday, the smell of cooked meat. And then Saturday, people would dance out on the street um, and just be deviant. Uh, they do this in uh, Brazil. They do it, uh, you know, in Louisiana. I mean, they even still have the little baby in the cake, right? So, um, 
it is removing meat. But the weird thing is, is that it kind of seems like they moved it to June. I mean, time has been skewed. It is. It was 64 degrees and it's June here. So that's weird. But um, it seems like they moved it over <laughs> a bit because that's exactly what we're seeing with Pride Month. And it's quite fascinating that this is the month that Kamala Harris declared that people should fight like hell. And speaking of Pride Month, I am so shocked that people that fall in love with whoever they want to have to wear a label. It makes zero sense in this day and age to give so much basis to such a small percentage, uh, I guess, right? Um, but you know, it should be celebrated that they aren't being persecuted. Um, you know, they can actually walk down the street together. No one's going to judge them. But for some reason, they've taken it to a very ugly level. You know, demanding people to act a certain way. You know, there was in my building, there was, there were these people, you know, with all their colorful. I was really in a mood this weekend. Okay. Um, wasn't feeling it due to personal um, circumstances. And as I was looking for my keys, someone's like, oh my gosh, it's pride. Nah, nah, nah. And, you know, because I live right by the square. And I was just like, this is, you know, and I was like, all right, well, good for you. Now I know who you sleep with. No, I'm queer. What does that mean? What's your problem? Every single, are you like homophobic? And I'm like, girl, I used to mess with girls before you were in your dad's egg sack, right? I don't understand what you're telling me here that, oh, so if you're a lesbian, you just should identify as, you know, a part of us. You should be, no, I'm not. And second, second, no one has to do anything. Someone posted uh, a conversation between two lesbian women that I shared this weekend. And it was so fitting because it, it felt like it was the same conversation I was having where I was just like, why do you feel the need to tell the world that you like the same sex? Why do you feel the need? I mean, today I shared a news article where a lesbian said that biological males cannot be lesbians and she went to jail, right? This is pure insanity. May be that this tutorial that we're going to watch could come in handy at some point. I mean, we've got the Karens, you know, I saw grannies with their hubbies on, you know, with, with their bicycles, with the rainbow flags. I it's just, it's bizarre, you know? And I thought to myself, you know, I, I would have been proud to wave that around for a friend of mine that, you know, killed himself because he felt he couldn't, you know, deal with the situation uh, years ago. Um, I would have felt to be like, yeah, today we acknowledge this one day, just like veterans have one day, just like dead soldiers have one day, right? That this change has happened. But for some reason, it's a month of festivities that has now brought children into the conversation. And how a child at the age of nine years old is busy playing outside, riding their bike, and they piss themselves and they're 
adamant that they're Batman, but for some reason at a younger age than that, where they don't know if, you know, you know how toddlers are. They're cranky as shit. Kids up until the age of 11 are cranky as shit. Okay. You're at the supermarket and they're tired. They'll just start bitching or whining or crying. We all know this as parents is because they don't know what's wrong with them. Right. But apparently, even though they don't know what's wrong with them, they don't have the good mind to maybe go inside and pee while they're playing so they don't mess themselves. Right. They think they're Batman. They could choose their gender now from the age of zero or better yet, you are not allowed to tell them the gender and better yet, you could bring them into strip joints and hand out money to men dressed up as women, you know, twerking to, you know, a six year old just watching that, which conditions them to accept that behavior. It makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. But I digress. Here's a follow-up tutorial, which is pretty alarming. To purge night. For the next 12 hours, all emergency services will be suspended, and all crime is legal. Now it's time to vent all that rage and frustration you've been storing up over the last year. It's time to purge. So, you're caught up in the modern dystopia that is the new Founding Fathers of America's version of the good old U.S. of A. And it's March 21st, purge night. How do you survive the purge without the benefit of high-powered military weaponry? As nothing more than a simple, normal, everyday Joe. First, let's recap the history of the purge briefly. Originally started as a grand social experiment on Staten Island by the ruling political party, the new Founding Fathers of America, the purge quickly grew to be a national event. And now every March 21st, all crime is legalized for 12 hours of absolute pandemonium and mayhem. But it's not just the everyday citizen getting in on the mass murdering. Because in order to keep up casualty figures, Purge Night is routinely supplemented by government kill squads, whose sole purpose it is to murder as many people as possible. But wait, you thought that Purge Night was about people venting their criminal anger and frustration out, so that the rest of the year you could live a peaceful, law-abiding life. Well, no, because it turns out that the new Founding Fathers of America are less interested in making America a great place to live and more interested in preserving the interests of the rich and powerful. Purge Night's real purpose isn't to help keep American crime down. It's actually to rid the United States of minorities and poor people, hence the government kill squads. So how are you going to survive class warfare in its most literal form? First, you have to have a plan for Purge Night. Waltzing into a 12-hour apocalypse is a great way to get yourself killed. So you better have a good plan, with multiple contingencies, to keep you alive. Your plan should include a place to shelter and how to get there in case you're running late on Purge Night and get caught out in the open. You should have both multiple avenues of approach to your shelter as well as multiple avenues of escape in case your shelter is breached. If you're sheltering at home, things like steel plates over windows and thick security doors will help keep out even the most determined purgers. But finding alternative, more secure shelter is probably your best bet. Places like old mine tunnels, abandoned military structures, and even derelict barges floating offshore are the perfect purge shelter. An old mine tunnel might be creepy and dark, but it typically only has one obvious way in with much less obvious escape shafts that could be hundreds or even thousands of feet away. With a single entryway, anyone wanting to purge you won't have the advantage of surprise, as long as you took the time to disguise your escape shafts well. Even better would be places like abandoned military bunkers or even old decommissioned missile silos, although those might be difficult to get into and make usable. 
Offshore structures means anyone hellbent on purging you is going to have to go through a whole lot of effort just to get to you. And if you're armed, which you should be, then they're going to present a very easy target as they make their way to you. You might simply opt to skip physical shelter altogether and instead just take to the sea on a boat. 12 hours isn't that long, and unless purgers are incredibly motivated to hunt you down, taking off for a half a day at sea is a great way to stay away from the gangs of roving purgers. Of course, another way to survive the purge is to simply be someone people don't want to purge in the first place. Odds are, as you go through the rest of your year, you're at least a little bit selfish or rude to your neighbors and co-workers. In a world with a yearly purge, that's a great way of making sure you have a big fat target on your back come purge night. Instead of being rude or selfish, try to be unselfish and helpful. Mow your neighbor's lawn, let them borrow your car when theirs breaks down, maybe keep your political views to yourself and off your Facebook. Make yourself likable and come purge night, anyone wanting to hurt or kill you is going to find that they have a laundry list of people they want to hurt or kill even more than you. It's only 12 hours after all, so as long as you make sure you're as close to the bottom of that hurt slash kill list as you can possibly get, you'll be fine. During purge night, gangs of roving psychopaths roam the streets looking for easy victims. So the best way to defeat these gangs of roving psychos is to have an even bigger gang of your own. Round up like-minded individuals in the months leading up to purge night and form a neighborhood militia. Even a small group of well-disciplined individuals committed to protecting each other can fend off larger packs of uncoordinated purgers just looking to cause mayhem. But forming a deadly neighborhood watch to survive purge night is only the first step. In the world of national security, the best way to ensure that your facility or your VIP isn't targeted for attack is to discourage an attack in the first place. This is known as becoming a hard target. It involves taking steps to ensure that when an attacker sizes you up for a possible attack, they realize that doing so would be too costly, even if successful, to be worth the effort. On purge night, being a hard target might be so effective that you wouldn't be targeted in the first place. After all, if you only have 12 hours to cause mayhem, why waste most of that time going after the neighborhood that's well defended and equipped to protect itself? Better to prey on weaker, more vulnerable people instead. So to become a hard target on purge night, forget going solo and round up that posse of like-minded neighbors, like we said. Against undisciplined bands of roving purgers, just realizing that they'd be going up against a disciplined force might be enough to discourage an attack in the first place. There's likely easier pickings elsewhere anyways, and like we said, the clock is ticking. But being disciplined is key. You don't want to appear like a group of random rabble. Create a uniform for your neighborhood protection force, and have every member wear it on purge night. Uniforms mean solidarity, and for roving purgers, it also lets them know that a well-established force is present in the area. Best to move along and look for more vulnerable targets. Next, practice basic self-defense drills together. And if you've got access to them, which you absolutely should in the insane world of the purge, make sure everyone is armed and knows how to use a firearm. Next, you'll want to roll out homemade barricades to shut off vehicle access to your neighborhood, as well as seal off avenues of approach that could be taken on foot. You can do this with physical barriers or by stationing groups of armed guards. Much like the defense of a military installation, you can purposefully leave one very obvious path for attackers to take. And this is where you would funnel anyone wishing to purge you so they can be easily taken out. Set up defensive positions for your guards with crisscrossing fields of fire. And anyone wishing to purge your neighborhood, including government forces, will find the effort is simply not worth it. But what if you're forced to go solo? Well, your best bet is to hide. Get out of the city, flee to the countryside, and take to the hills. Park your car somewhere remote, then take off on foot, pushing deeper and deeper into the wilds. Ideally, you would have begun your camping trip well before purge night, and made sure that your ultimate destination required multiple modes of travel to get there. 
like parking your car at the end of a dirt road somewhere, then taking a boat ride, and then hiking to reach your final destination. The United States has a great deal of truly wild places, and you can survive Purge Night by hiding out with Bigfoot. Of course, the best way to survive the Purge, though, is to make sure you aren't purgeable to begin with. Like we said in our recap of Purge history, the entire event is basically an excuse for rich people to kill off poor people. So, to survive Purge Night, just be rich. The wealthy and powerful are not just in many cases the most horrific proponents of violence on Purge Night, but are basically immune to being purged themselves thanks to their massive resources. Elite security agents, intruder-proof safe rooms, and homes that double as military fortresses all make being rich during Purge Night the best way to stay safe. Though, you'd still have to watch out for your fellow 1%er who loves nothing more than to play their six sadistic games of revenge and torture on each other come Purge Night. If you're financially challenged, then good news, because there's still a chance to make yourself untouchable come Purge Night. The America of the Purge is still sort of a democracy, so simply run for a high enough government office and you can be classified a level 10 government employee, which is still illegal to kill on Purge Night. The government still needs to operate post-Purge, after all. And if all of our political differences could be settled with mass murder, well, at least Facebook would be a lot quieter place. Alright, you're not rich, and you're not likable enough to get elected. Matter of fact, you're not likable enough to not get purged. And you know that that kid you cut off at the Green Line a week ago is definitely going to be looking to get all purgy on you come purge night. Your home is kind of indefensible because you can't afford the fancy security systems other people can and you don't have access to a whole cache of weapons. What are you going to do? Often, the best place to hide isn't where people won't go looking, but where they don't want to go looking. We're talking about the worst places you can imagine spending 12 hours in. Places that no human being in their right mind would ever enter. Like a T-Mobile store. Not as good as a T-Mobile store, but close, would be a sewage treatment plant. Even a rancid landfill. These are places people avoid in their normal lives, and for someone to hunt you down in one of these disgusting locations, they're going to have to be really extra motivated. Become one with the filth. Dig in deep to a pile of fresh trash, or camp out next to a large sewage holding pond. These places are going to smell so disgusting that very few people are going to even think about looking for victims in a place they themselves would never willingly go. Of course, you can also opt to wait out the purge in places that are just incredibly unlikely to be targeted by purgers, places like a local library. Think about it, what psychopath purger is going to even consider for a second to check a local library for victims or anything worth stealing? You'll naturally want to avoid hiding out in places that could attract looters. After all, every crime is legal come purge night, and a bunch of people are just going to be looking for free loot. But who in the world is going to be breaking into a library looking for things to steal? The best way to avoid purge night, though, is just to leave the country altogether. You don't even have to be rich to do it. Just hop in a car and drive either north or south until you hit the Canadian or Mexican border. It'll take you a couple of tanks of gas and a day road trip, but you can plan out a long weekend for yourself and sit in a crappy Canadian motel room eating poutine and watching America burn itself to the ground on TV. Just like the real Founding Fathers would have wanted. Odds are you're still going to end up getting hurt come purge night, so watch our video how to actually survive getting shot. Or click this other video instead. So that was a really weird thing to say. But the one thing that struck struck a chord with me was in purge night, people are going to want to take you out who don't like you. So why don't you just be nice and keep your political posts off Facebook and be kind to people and be apologetic so you can be quiet, right? And this is where it leads us to our second um, part of the show. Because 
as I said, with all these distractions, with J6, with all of this that's going on, the craziness, Ukraine, the Biden lap, like it's so much. There's so much information overload. And as I mentioned, SCOTUS is not only looking at Roe versus Wade, First Amendment, which means there's something called government government speech. Um, but in the Second Amendment, we have Congress pushing forward for uh, confiscating a weapon. We had this, you know, usurper, Kamala Harris, demanding cities to crack down on taking people's weapons. But we're also getting what India got four years ago. And this is where it comes down to it. Someone posted online on Telegram that they went to the doctor and they were going to do something and they wanted to share their results in case they needed to find her in a disaster and identify her, right? And she's like, why would they need my shit in a disaster to identify me? And if you guys remember when people were lining up for the COVID tests, what did I call them? DNA harvesting parties. Now people are seeing that this BlackRock, Bill Gates, China, they're selling your genetic information, right? All of this is happening. The government has purchased all the genetic data from 23andMe and Ancestry.com. They demonstrated that to you in such a great way. Look, you're going to find family members you would have never known. And you're going to see where you come from and you just, you know, swab yourself, mail it off. And it's just incredible. We'll have your genetic code. We'll know exactly. And we can do personalized medicine. You'll meet with a geneticist. We'll totally take care of you. And then it comes down to something fascinating. So now they're telling you how to cure a problem, but also how to protect you. So let's go back in time to, um, is it 2008? I'm trying to remember. Let me see what year this is. Um, hold on. Okay. 2016. Okay. 2016. I want you guys to listen to John Oliver. I actually loved the way he would put things together. But this is kind of important. Take a listen. The basis for the single most important three-digit number in your heart, 311, the, the Beatles, Beatles of Rap Rock. rock. <laughs> Measuring credit enables businesses to know who to lend to. It's critical to our economy, and it always has been. Millions of people use credit to buy the things that add up to a better living. Well, there's sure a lot of things that I'd like to buy for better living. How about giving me a little credit? Nobody gives you credit, John. It's something you have to earn. To earn credit, first you have to develop your character. You have to have capacity to pay your bills. And third, you need some capital. Scoring high on these three C's is essential to earn a good credit rating. Of course, uh, back then, there was a fourth C determining your access to credit, namely, what color you were. It's a little bit weird that one didn't make the movie. but. But you might be surprised at just how many aspects of your life your credit reports can affect. Because it's not just banks deciding whether to lend you money. It's also landlords deciding whether to rent you an apartment, insurers setting your rates, and even employers using it to decide whether or not to hire you. 
47 percent of employers do conduct credit checks on new potential hires. And it is legal if the employer gets permission from the applicant. That's right. Nearly half of employers delve into credit histories when hiring. And just look on Craigslist because you'll find credit checks are required in all sorts of job listings from managing a Benihana in Cincinnati uh, to this one, which reads, who runs those fireworks tents? It could be you. <laughs> Application with good credit check required, which is clearly ridiculous. They don't need to bring credit into that job. They just need to ask the question, what do you think of fireworks? And then hear the answer, fireworks are fucking sick, bro. I fucking love lighting those fuckers. The only three digits they need to see are the ones on that person's two hands. There, there, are, there are three big credit reporting firms. Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. All three aggressively market their products for uses beyond lending. For instance, listen to how Experian convinces employers that your credit may reflect your future job performance. If you manage your credit well, then it's very likely you're going to manage the company's money well. Yeah, is it though? Because look at me, my credit is probably fine, but I routinely waste HBO's money on <laughs> stupid costumes, pyrotechnic displays, and checkered dress shirts. I, I clearly cannot manage this company's money well. Now, as for, as for TransUnion, uh, their website explicitly states that credit reports help employers make decisions quickly and easily when deciding on potential candidates, which is a little surprising given this exchange between a representative from TransUnion and an Oregon legislator. What is the evidence that there's a strong correlation between accessing an applicant's credit history and eventual problems of loss to the employer or to the clients, I guess, in that case? I would say that there, uh, at this point, we don't have any research to show any statistical correlation between what's in somebody's credit report and their job performance or their likelihood to commit fraud. Okay, so they admit there is no evidence of a correlation, which does make sense, because a good credit score could mean you're unlikely to commit fraud, but it could also mean that you're so f***ing amazing at it, you've never been caught. And, and incidentally, not 30 seconds later, that guy said this. Given all things equal between two or three job applicants, if a person has a high a high amount of debt versus somebody who doesn't, and all things other being equal, well, maybe they want to consider that. So wait, he's saying there's no proof of a correlation, but you're free to imagine that there is, which is not a strong argument. I can imagine that eating alphabet soup will increase my vocabulary. That does not make it indubitable. Oh, indubitable! I knew I ate a lot of letters yesterday. Indubitable! But look, Giving too much credence to credit reports as a measure of character may be a big mistake. First, over half the debt on uh, credit reports comes from medical expenses, and it seems unfair to judge someone for that. No one chooses to be sick, with the possible exception of Julianne Moore taking a run at Best Actress. <laughs> but, but also, credit reports can contain a shocking number of errors. A new government study found about 25% of consumers have an error in one of their credit reports. The study also found about 1 in 20 had significant errors that could cause them to pay more for a car loan or a mortgage. Just think about that. 1 in 4 had an error and 1 in 20 were seriously wrong. And that is not good. If every 20th Frosty that Wendy sold 
turned out to be a cup of warm goat semen, we would want some accountability and we'd want it fast. At least freeze it. And, and look, those, those errors can be anything from including debt that you've already uh, repaid to mixing you up with someone else entirely. Take what happened to a woman called Judy Thomas. She couldn't figure out why she kept getting turned down for loans until she looked at her credit report. I saw debt from Utah Medical Center. I saw debt from a veterinarian clinic in Utah. I saw collections for a Judith Kendall. Judith Kendall. Mm-hmm. Not Judy Thomas. Correct. What's going through your mind? What the hell is she doing on my credit report? <laughs> what the hell is her debt doing on my credit report? Wow. How can someone called Judy Thomas be mixed up with Judith Kendall? And also, if she's going to be mistaken for anyone, how is it not Leslie Stahl? Because that is spooky. And, and it actually gets worse. Because if a credit reporting agency matches your name to a list of suspected criminals the US has sanctions against, as they did with Amit Patel, you may be in for an unpleasant surprise. After being denied his dream apartment, he asked his landlord why. As an answer, the landlord forwarded his credit report. Can you read this for me? What does that say? Terrorist. Holy shit! That is terrible! Because one, he is not a terrorist, and two, I do hope we have a better strategy for dealing with terrorists than flagging their credit reports and denying them their dream apartments. Not in America! Not in America! And and being mixed up with a terrorist is not even the worst thing a credit bureau can do to someone. Helen McGill was shocked when she went to buy a travel trailer to learn she was dead. The financial manager came out and said, do you have like a copy of your card because uh, you, you keep coming up deceased? So I was like, there's no way. Three major credit bureaus listed her as deceased. I even paid at that point, too, to get my credit score. You can't get anything when you're deceased. No credit score, there's nothing. You don't even exist. Just one error on your credit report and suddenly the world treats you like a mean girl treats the high school debate team. You're nothing, Amberly. You don't even exist. <laughs> and, and here is the thing. It would be bad enough if this just involved the three big credit bureaus. But on top of that, there are now hundreds of different companies providing even broader background checks, which may bundle credit information with things like criminal or driving records. And while some companies appear to operate responsibly, others like General Information Services or JIS (laughs) do things that make you doubt their judgment. We, We actually found this fun video they made featuring Snow White coming to them for help. Now, fairy tale isn't an industry that we specialize in, but lucky for you, our magic mirror can find anything worth locating. If only you were in the insurance industry, we've created tons of solutions for those guys. Oh my, was that a fairy? We're an equal opportunity employer. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, was that a home... <laughs> I have to say, guys, I'm watching this with you. I'm like laughing. Okay, so it's 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 super funny the way he's putting it out there, but this is super serious, and you're going to see why. I wanted to, to to to. I want you guys to see this. I want you guys to th- see this. Remember, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax are private companies. I want you guys to see this. 
even though he's actually, <laughs> that was funny. We're equal opportunity. Oh my gosh. Homophobic fairy joke. Because it's hard enough to accept judgment from a company that would do that, let alone deliver it with the acting skill of a shy third grader. And background check agencies can take all the problems of credit reporting while adding a few more. And let's begin with the obvious here. As we've discussed before on this show, a criminal record does not necessarily mean you're a bad person or that you shouldn't be hired. But if you are going to use a criminal background check to make decisions, at the very least, they should be accurate. And frequently, they are not. Take Samuel Jackson from Chicago. No relation to the actor, obviously. Or to the three different sex offenders one company confused him with, even though one of those convictions happened when Jackson was just three years old. Or as his lawyer puts it... The background check company was aware that Mr. Jackson is only um, 30 years old, so it clearly couldn't have been him. And obviously he couldn't be all three sex offenders at the same time. Yeah, of course not. Of course not, because there's only one person who could pull off being three sex offenders at the same time, and that is Mr. Neil Patrick Harris. I'm not saying he is, I'm saying he has got the performance chops to make you believe it is possible. If he put it might, if he put his mind to it, he could be the literal triple threat. He's that good. He's that good a performer. And, and remember, these mistakes can cost people housing and jobs. It is no wonder that many firms have wound up facing legal challenges. For instance, just last year, GIS and their affiliates had to jizz out $13 million in fines and damages. And while they admit no wrongdoing, they've now lost so much money, their next shitty video is probably just going to be a filthy parrot in an old warehouse screaming, Polly wants a background check. And at this point, you are probably thinking, well, holy shit, I should probably check my background and credit reports. Well, the good news is, under a law called the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the big three credit firms are required to give you a copy once a year. And there's even an official site where you can get yours. But if you do spot an error, your trouble may just be beginning. Remember Judy Thomas? It took her a surprisingly long time to get her credit fixed. It became a six-year battle with credit agencies requiring box loads of correspondence to try and prove that she was Judy Thomas, not Judith Kendall. All to no avail. I also hired a, a, a local attorney to try and straighten it out. We had everything certified um, that this is Judy Thomas. This is where I live. I've never gone by the name of Kendall. I've never even been to Utah, let alone owing a cable company in Utah. And what happened? Nothing. Oh, come on. At this point, I'm surprised you didn't just go, you know what, f*** it, I'm Judith Kendall. I'm moving to Utah and I'm getting a sick pet and a cable package. At least then my life will make some f***ing sense to me. It is, it's probably not surprising that when we crunch the numbers, we discovered that the three big credit bureaus have been the subject of the most complaints to the CFPB since the start of last year. And they may say that sometimes they receive inaccurate data from creditors so the mistakes don't originate with them. But if that's true, their method for resolving those problems clearly needs to be better. And in a settlement agreement just last March, they actually pledged to improve their dispute resolution process. But before you get too hopeful about that, it's worth noting the industry has claimed for decades that they are always improving their accuracy. And yet for 25 years now, the news stories about them have had something of a similar tone. 
We saw a recent study that said 25% of credit reports had errors serious enough to deny you credit. A new study finds a staggering number of credit reports contain mistakes. A new study says credit reports frequently have errors that can be very costly for consumers. A survey by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group found nearly one-third of all credit reports contain serious errors. You don't have to spend long preparing a broadcast about credit agencies before you learn one simple truth. Everyone, and I mean everyone, has a horror story. It's, it's pretty obvious that problems with credit agencies are a classic news story trope. Like- so that was back till 1991. And personally speaking, uh, <laughs> I could tell you years ago when my identity was stolen, that shit was crazy. And right now I'm in the position where I don't have debt. Like, you know, obviously I have credit cards, but I, I don't put anything on it that I can't pay. Um, but I have zero debt and yet I can't get loans. I can't do anything. And I have zero debt. Like my student loans done, everything done. And, you know, I started in a very negative position and that's because there were crimes adjudicated against me, right? Like, Someone committed a crime against me and I had to actually send out all that documentation from the courts to the actual credit agencies to get that rectified. And yet my score will never go, you know, more than 650, 660, even though I don't have anything. Now, I know... um for a fact that there are people that, you know, can't even get surgery done. Your insurance, um, oh, uh, by the way, someone, I, I'm looking at the messages, you have to get credit. Guys, I have like a special wallet where I have a box like like of credit cards. Obviously, I have like three secured ones that I did at the beginning and I have like Ulta, Macy's, this, that. I don't use them and they're not much of, you know, limits or anything, but I just have them because I want it, but I can't. And so the question is why, right? This is the question and I'm going to tell you why. Um, so... Um, <laughs> After I had sent off all the documentation um, for the fraud against me and who was responsible for this, who was responsible for that, you know, obviously, um, divorce, I got to um, uh, get everything done from the criminal courts to the civil courts and I sent it off. It took them over six months to get that fixed. And that was done. And so I have... You know, like if an emergency happens and I go like I had to take I had to go to the doctor, say my bills were more than, you know, I have to pay my own health insurance for me and my children. Obviously, Hera has, you know, um, uh, she's in the military, but I still have to pay for that. That's twelve hundred dollars a month. That's a lot of money. And on top of that, I have to pay doctor's bills because as you guys know, the deductible are 5,700 for each person. And I think it's like 10,000 for both or something like that. Well, here's, here's the deal. If an emergency happens, I won't be able to get a line of credit even though I don't have any debt and I have credit cards. So, you know, with no debt, how is my score so low? And I, I wondered that, you know, it's, it's, it's really weird because, you know, I do the thing, I follow the rules where I always had a credit card. I only had like two and I would use them 
you know, for gas and travel. That's the only reason I have credit cards is when I travel because I have to pay for the hotel and you have to show a credit card. I pay for my flight and those things I have to pay. I have to have the budget to do those things. So I will put it on the card so it looks like I'm using it, but paying it off completely. So it doesn't make sense. So then I thought to myself, well, Biden, (laughs) you're going to be like, what? Yeah, guys. So guess what? Let me show you a, um, you know, actually you can hear it. It's a radio clip from India. Take a listen. Starting off with the top story, the Reserve Bank has initiated steps to set up a digital public credit registry or PCR to capture details of all borrowers, including willful defaulters in order to check financial wrongdoings. Now, the PCR will also include data from entities like market regulator, SEBI, the Corporate Affairs Ministry, Goods and uh, Service Tax Network, and the Insolvency and Bankruptcy Board of India to enable the banks and financial institutions to get the 360-degree profile of existing and prospective borrowers on a real-time basis. The Reserve Bank has invited expression of interest or commonly known as EOI for developing the registry from companies with a turnover of rupees 100 crore in the last three years. In June this year, the RBI had announced to set up a PCR for India with a view to foster access to credit and strengthen the credit culture in the economy. Earlier, a high-level task force was constituted by the RBI to review the current availability of information on credit and identify gaps that could be filled by a PCR. The PCR would be the single point of mandatory reporting for all material events for each loan. Now, setting up of the PCR assumes significance to counter the rising bad loans problem in the financial system. The non-performing assets in the banking system is about rupees 10 lakh crore right now. In other words, India is now a communist nation. What did you say to worry? No way. Well, what she said is the Royal Bank of India, the country's bank, actually created a public credit agency. And so now... Anyone that gets credit has to report it to the government. It's no longer going to private companies. And guess what? Biden is doing the same thing. Yeah, he's doing the same exact thing. Let me find a clip of a woman very excited about this. And listen to what she has to say and how she's, you know, posturing this. Like a lot of other liberal bloggers and those that are alleged minorities think it's being done to help black, brown, and Asian people obtain credit. I kid you not. And this is happening right now as we speak. Yes, you heard me right. He wants to get rid of Equifax, TransUnion, and Experience. So we need to talk about this today, y'all, and what that actually means for us. So don't go anywhere. I'll be right back. What's up, guys? This is Monique, and 
welcome back to the channel. I am back with the news that you can use, but first, if you are new here. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, shalom. Thanks so much for stopping by, but don't just be a stranger. Go ahead, hit that subscribe button and join the family because here we go everywhere in life together and all we do is win. Also, do me a huge favor and like this video so that it can get out to more people. That's what I was doing in that moment. Put you with all the information rid of Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. But that doesn't mean he's trying to do away with credit reporting and scoring altogether. I know some of you were probably jumping through the roof like, oh my goodness, I don't have to worry about a credit score anymore. No, that's not the case because credit scores pretty much run America, okay? I don't see them doing away with that anytime. But instead, what he wants to do is replace Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. These are private companies. And when I say private, I mean for-profit. And for-profit means they profit off of your credit reports. They are selling their services to banks, to mortgage lenders, to credit card companies, and anybody who lends a line of credit. So for President Biden, that was one of the first red flags. And that's the fact that it is believed that these companies actually exist to serve lenders and not to actually help consumers. The consumers are you and I. They're not here for the little people. They want to help these major financial institutions because that's where the bread and butter is for them. So instead of allowing this to carry on, President Biden wants to go ahead on and create a public credit reporting agency that will be a part of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So basically he wants the government to step on in and take control of credit reporting and scoring. Now, what you think about this part right there before I go any further, comment down below and let me know what your thoughts are. But for those that are not actually familiar with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, they are responsible for writing and enforcing the rules for financial institutions. They make banks, lenders, and other financial institutions treat us fairly. So one of the reasons that President Biden and wants to go ahead on and take the reins here is because of the fact that Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax all use different scoring methods. Not Hold on. I, it says here what she highlights, but I want you... <laughs> Thankfully, Biden's proposal seems to be on the right track for leveling economic playing field. Now, what the, the calculating of the scores, they're right. I remember at one point the highest score that I had. And remember, I have to restart all of this because I had a bunch of shit happen to mine, right? At one point, it was like 702 and it was in one. And then the other one was like 593. I'm like, the fuck? How does that happen? I haven't changed anything. So there is merit to what he is saying and what they are saying. But Look at this. Following a proposal from Demos. Where do we hear that? Hunter Biden, right? In that video, I am Demos, right? A think and do tank searching for solutions for economic inequality. The Biden administration has been planning on shutting down the three major credit bureaus. In their place, a public credit reporting agency, CRA, where it's um, the public credit um, bureau in India, in China, it's called the Chinese Credit Bureau, right? Um, they'll be in charge of credit reporting and scoring, which means that the federal government will have access to all your bank accounts, to all your financial information, what loans you get, what credit cards you have, where you spend it, right? All of that, because that all comes in one neat package. Sounds right. Mm. Listen more. 
Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax all use different scoring methods. Not one person used the same thing. So that means that everyone has varying results. You know how in school there's an answer key and if you grade in a test, you look at it and it's like, okay, the answer is A, C, D, E. There's no A, C, D, E. There's like B, Z, R, Q, S. Like it's all over the place. They all have separate ways of scoring. And that's why when you look at your scores, they are pretty much typically all different. And President Biden just wants to create a standardized way to say, hey, this is how everyone is great. And another reason he wants to cancel these credit bureaus is because of the fact that there's frequently errors that are reported. And he wants us to be able to have access to accurate credit reports as we should, as we deserve. The Federal Trade Commission actually states that one in four people have credit report errors. In fact, I believe the numbers are even higher. There's a lot of people that are walking around today that don't even realize they have a lot of errors on their report. That's why I always tell you first and foremost, always 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 check your report as frequently as you can and when in doubt dispute and let them figure it out but even with disputing a lot of times it said that it doesn't tend to work for everyone and the federal trade commission said that people that reported unresolved errors still say that they have at least one thing that's not correct or Now, she highlights that, but let me read this part. The Biden administration believes a public CRA credit reporting agency could advance racial equity by removing obstacles of home ownership for black, Latino and native families. Traub, the author of Demos Established, a credit registry, Demos Established, look into them. Um, they have a credit registry proposal and they're saying that in the world of credit reporting, credit scoring and lending, there are shortcomings in all the proposals. Now, again, many of you will say, well, the government already has access to all this. Yes, they do. But they don't have your permission to use it. Therefore, they cannot use it against you. So. They can't use it against you because you haven't consented to it. You see, this is how they are going to get it done. They're going to tell you kind of like Obamacare. It fucked you. It gave them the right to take first. They put all the medical records on the AER, which is a global cloud. So that way, with your permission, you can access your medical records from another country. Now, are they accessing it anyway? Yes, they fucking are. But can they use it against you? Um, you know, publicly or, um, you know, showcase it publicly? No, they cannot without your permission. Then Obamacare gave these credit agencies access to your health records, auto insurance, home insurance. This is financial discrimination. Actually, I said that to um, someone when I got my car insurance um, in January of 2020 because it was just me. Um, the my amount was high, and I was like, "Shit, I'm paying more than someone with a fucking DUI. I've never had an accident. I've never, you know, had a DUI. Why the fuck am I paying so much? Yeah, it's your credit." And I'm like, "So there is no correlation between someone having <coughs> a bad credit report and their driving record." And they're like, "Well, we say it does. So there you go." 
So that's financial discrimination. It's a form of conservatorship to the government. And now the government wants your permission to after owning your health, because that's exactly what they've been demonstrating ever since Obamacare. This is why it was important for President Trump to get that shit repealed. He at least got the tax portion done, right? (laughs) But he didn't get the data portion done. Now that they have all your health records, they want consent from you to make them public, your financial records. And so um, your credit now runs your insurances and that's based on your health too. Let's pretend you're diabetic and you drive. Your insurance may put stipulations that they will not cover you out-of-state driving because as a diabetic, you cannot be covered outside of your state. This is key, you guys. This is key. So again, now he's trying to harness in permission. This is about permission to also hold, manipulate, and use your financial information. So therefore... If you kind of like Bank of America gave everybody's credit card information without asking you to the federal government, to whoever swiped their card in D.C. on January 6th, that's illegal. If I had Bank of America and I sent them an email and they said we gave it to law enforcement, I would then sue. That's what every American should have fucking done, but they didn't. Why? Because now if we have this CRA in place that Biden wants, you can't fucking complain, can you? You can't complain because now there is consent that the government can see every single charge you make, every single purchase you make, everything. And if someone is a naughty, naughty, naughty and on a ban list and you buy them, I don't know, hot cocoa when they're not allowed to have any treats, Guess who's getting fined? Wait, listen to her. Here's where she goes a little bit on the doubt thing. On their report. They are suggesting that if the government goes on ahead and take over, then there won't be any error. But But you know me, I want to find all of the truth, so I look at all sides of the coin. And there are actually a lot of critics against this. That's why I want your opinion, too. Make sure you comment down below and let me know what you think about that so far. But a lot of people say that, what's to say the government won't have the same type of problem? They are expecting that the government will struggle just as much as these private credit bureaus are. And on top of that, it is estimated that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will have to double in size to be able to actually handle all of the disputes that are coming in, which means if there are more government workers, there are more tax dollars going that way. So which means we are going to have to pay for this. Do you want to pay for this? Comment down below and let me know. But the main goal of this entire proposal is to make the system fair because it has been found to have a lot of racial disparities when it comes to credit scoring. For starters, 20% of Americans are what is called credit invisible. They are unscorable. And 45% of those people are individuals that are in low-income neighborhoods. So this plan was created to pretty much try to level the playing field for economically disadvantaged Americans. And what are they leveling the playing field for? They want to actually try to help more people be able to purchase homes. That's what their intentions are. And President Biden proposes that federal housing programs such as the FHA will have to use this new scoring model. So 
so let's look at other benefits of this, other ways that this is supposed to help people to be able to get in home. And one of those ways is by looking at non-traditional payment histories, such as your rent payments and your utility bill payments. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. Stop the press. Let's take a breakdown of this. So she says they want to help us, right? Somebody needs to educate this lady. So she says they want to help us and the FHA and all of this, and they're going to look at alternative. I want you guys to think about it for a second. If you're on, on, a, on a list of, you know, claiming that there's voter fraud, will you be able to get a house loan? I'm, I'm just asking for a friend. What about a credit card? And in order for them to do this, think about it for a second. Just think about it. So the Bank of America, Wells Fargo, your credit union, all of them will be reporting to the government. Wait, a private institution will then have to get permission from its people. And I think something like this went around with the over $600. Are you getting it? You see how they do it in increments? I'm showing you how they implement things when you're not watching. I did a whole show of how they wanted to look at your bank account if you spend more than $600. Do you remember that? If you get $600 or spend $600. Well, that's because they're saying, hey, bank, you need to report this. Get permission from them that you'll be reporting it to the government right now. So now the banks have your permission to report to the IRS, which isn't really the federal government. It's really not. It's actually housed and headquartered in a territory of the U.S. But anyway, so first they did that. So then that means that the government intends to then control the monetary system. So the banks will be obsolete. Are you getting this? Are you seeing how this maps out? I mean, it doesn't take, you know, rocket science of math. First, the 600, they got your permission from your bank because you're still banking with them to report. Now, they're going to be reporting all your debt or lines of credit. And then, you know how banks like PayPal, Stripe, Chase, we're shutting people's accounts down. What about access to like, you know, the spring tea things? Hmm? They started acting out what they're going to be doing. In other words, this is how they control every aspect of you. They took your health and that's it. So, you know, everyone's going to be dancing and saying thank you. Oh, would you like a curtsy too? Thank you for taking all my health information. Thank you for taking my money. And now that you control my health, my money, and obviously my job, because I can't get a job because you have all this data on me. So you can say nobody, I'm completely blacklisted. I can't get a job. You know what? Um, I applied, and this is something that I've been working on. I applied for two jobs, one that I'm fully qualified for and that I did for 15 years, and one that was like as a barista, kid you not. I applied for two jobs. I was declined on both of them. I was declined on both of them. You know, to the barista, I was like, look, 
I'm just a single mom, newly divorced, need a job. I was declined on both. And so every now and then I'm applying to things that I should be a prime candidate for and other things, but I have been blacklisted. This is coming from things like, um, um, my mind, it's cause I'm sick. Um, clear force. They tell employers what I have zero criminal record, by the way. I, I, I know people say whatever. I have zero criminal record. I had a Charlie clearance that was active. It could still be active. You know, I, my top secret obviously is inactive and my secret. Um, but all of these things, right? All of these things are tying into it. They're putting you in a box and then comes the ID. Mm. And what did the Bible say about the ID? Oh, that's right. You can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. So this is really, really important. It's quite interesting how this is going. And nowhere, nowhere is anybody talking about this either. And that's what sucks. I mean, how are people not talking about this when it's important? How are people not looking at this when it's important? Now, um, I want to show you two clips of the news just to show you how hard they're losing. And you're going to be like, what? We're not losing. They're taking our rights. They're taking our rights. And we're trying to mitigate that. On the other hand, we have this J6 scenario, right? What if I told you that they're mitigating and I'm going to show you their desperation because they lost and I'll show you why. So first of all, let's talk about how Enrique Tario has to do with QAnon. What? Oh yeah, it totally does. Proud Boys and four other top lieutenants in the far-right extremist group face seditious conspiracy charges. These are the most serious charges brought by the Justice Department as part of the ongoing investigation into the violent insurrection on Capitol Hill last year. Federal prosecutors accuse Enrique Tarrio and his co-defendants of plotting the attack in advance and encouraging supporters to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 election. The men have already pleaded not guilty to earlier charges. Meanwhile, another group getting more attention since the attack on the Capitol is QAnon, or Q. Many of those who attacked the Capitol are followers or supporters. The supporters of QAnon spread all sorts of anti-Semitic and nonsensical conspiracies and disinformation. They have found a niche on social media, certainly, and within the Republican Party. But CNN's Donio Sullivan discovered some GOP candidates who've seemingly supported QAnon beliefs in the past may now try to be uh, distancing themselves from it. Take a look. With the whole COVID thing, and a lot of people say it's a pandemic. okay? I don't know if that's true or not. I'm open to the possibility of anything because I see how much we've been lied to. Nicholas Ferreira is running in the Republican primary for New Jersey's 3rd Congressional District. He is a QAnon diehard. Somebody watching this might say, how does somebody as intelligent and put together as you are go down the QAnon rabbit hole and and believe it? Because I've seen the evidence. False QAnon predictions like this one in 2017. Yeah, that's because it hasn't happened yet. So, um, so hey, I think we like this Ferraro guy, right? Which claimed that Hillary Clinton was about to be arrested have not deterred Ferrera. Does the fact that so much of this was bullshit not put you off it? Well, now, you could say that, though. They always say future proves past. So these things, they didn't happen like, like, the, you know, like the Clinton thing. But supposedly they can happen in the future to the day, say three, four years to the day. We'll see. 
one of the ways that we found you was you're on this list put together by the liberal group Media Matters. They identify you as a QAnon candidate. Are you a QAnon candidate? You know, I don't know anything about that. I have no idea what they're talking about. There's zero evidence. Darlene Swaffer, who is running in Florida's 22nd Congressional District, denies knowing anything about QAnon, despite posts referencing the conspiracy theory on her social media. They have a screenshot of you in a QAnon group, QAnon Great Awakening, where you say your posts have inspired me to explore to run for Congress in 2020. Yeah, I think we're definitely focused on uncovering the truth. We want to know what corruption is going on in our country. What is the QAnon slogan? Well, there's a, there's a number. Where we go one, we go all, I guess, is the... Yeah, is the main one. Where does that come from? Where are we going? Where we go all? It's a good question. I do know that JFK had it on the back of his boat. There was like a bell and it was etched into that bell. Where we go one, we go all. Do you know that that slogan came from John F. Kennedy? That's where that came from. And that slogan was on his yacht, his boat. That's a popular answer for QAnon believers who want to deny they embrace the conspiracy theory slogan. But it's not true. CNN asked the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, which said it had found no evidence that the phrase had anything to do with Kennedy's boats or any indication he had said the phrase. Nice guy, Preston. In fact, the slogan seems to come from Hollywood on the boat of Ridley Scott's 1996 disaster survival movie, White Squall. Favorite movie. Where we go one, we go all. I mean, we've spoken to some other Republican primary candidates who have tweeted QAnon stuff in the past, but now they're trying to distance themselves from it. They're saying, oh, I, don't, I don't follow Q. Sure. Why, is, why do you think they're doing that? Because they get attacked nonstop. I thought, I thought QAnon said they're in the cabal. They're in the cabal, well. And then there's Darren Aquino, a New Yorker who moves south. He's running in Florida's 25th district. That's me and Jimmy on The Sopranos. His Twitter account has multiple past references to QAnon. A few times you did tweet the QAnon slogan, where we go one, we go all. I didn't tweet that. At that, the beginning, that, I didn't tweet my tweets because I'm not very technical. Right. So I had people, they tweet for me. Okay. Darren says he knows nothing about QAnon, but that he did believe a conspiracy theory after the 2020 election that martial law might be put in place to stop Biden's inauguration. He says he even stocked up on canned goods and other supplies. Those concerns about martial law in January 2021, as somebody who's followed QAnon, the conspiracy theory movement, a lot of those claims that all this madness was going to happen in January 21. Was that QAnon that you're saying that put this stuff out? I'm saying that the community around QAnon was what was pushing it, what was pushing these claims, which turned out to be false. They never materialized. Okay, so the, what I was getting came actually from QAnon. I would say from the kind of QAnon community. Okay. I got it from people that, that knew me. In other states, yeah, they were telling you, Darren, this is going to be get ready. Okay, what are we getting ready for? <laughs> Would you say you're a victim of misinformation? Yeah, but I, I wouldn't make it like I'm a weak victim. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, uh-huh. uh huh. Sure, because I'm a patriot. So somebody, look at it from this one. Let's tell that patriot because he'll spread the word. So yeah, I'm a victim of somebody's lie to use my credibility. And, and, and my patriotism to spread a word that's a lie. And Tony joins me now. Um, the, the, putting aside to him, the, the other two seem uh, clearly to have been pushing tweets about QAnon. And now, I mean, the first one seems to be standing by it. The, 
uh, Miss uh, Darlene Darlene, uh, Dar- Darlene Swafford. Darlene she now just seems to be pretending like that didn't happen. That's right, and we've kind of seen that with with more or candidates. Believing it didn't happen. Yeah, more more and more candidates GOP who have realized that the QAnon label it's gone out of vogue. You know, given the likes of the QAnon shaman and things like that. Uh, but what we're seeing really is that the belief system that has been popularized through the kind of QAnon movement uh, still lives on. I mean, you heard from Miss Waffer there; she still believes. Uh, the election was stolen um, and she's so now the election being stolen is a QAnon theory. That's what they're pushing. I mean, I remember Twitch. They removed me because they said that I was talking that I that I was promoting QAnon on my channel with their new rules and regulations when I never streamed after their new rules and regulations. And this is back down to those insane people that made all of you look crazy. And so, you know, these people are obsessed with Q only because the foundations of what this group was trying to perpetuate when it hijacked it was unity, unity under specific banners, I would say, which was wrong. It was supposed to be quantum thinking. Instead, it turned very hyper-specific. I mean, when I saw it call out Carly, I was like, you just fucked up and exposed yourself. You know, I was just like, no, that's not the computer. That's a person. So the, the fact of the matter is, bottom line, bottom line, is that this had, you know, this posting had three distinct voices, three distinct voices, but if we look at it as a collective purging all, you know, the the bullshit on the side, where we go one, we go all is a very, very, what well, it's a statement that every American should embrace. We should realize that if we're all in the same boat, we don't want to sink it. We should all realize that, you know, what happens to one of us happens to all of us uh, at at some point or another. So, you know, I don't see why, you know, they, you know, are so adamant now from Q to taking the phrase to say it's from the Q community. I mean, how big is that community? Is everyone Q? So now we're just going to be tacking on more things. This is the problem. And so, you know, they, they, they had people, you know, pushing out crazy theories. This is why I'm so pissed at some uh, important people throwing me in the same bucket as some fucking losers that sat there. They had nothing on me. They don't even have access to. Uh, never mind. Let's just keep going. Sites evidence from, from the pillow guy, Mike, Mike Lindell, Lindell uh, to, to prove that. that. Uh, and, and then, then to, to the more dark side, side but we, we didn't, didn't touch it on, on, on this piece, but, you know, there is that belief system where that anybody who disagrees with Trump or disagrees with the Republicans is a pedophile. Uh, and that was popularized uh, through the QAnon movement. And we saw even recently, Elise Stefanik, the number three uh, in the House Republicans, she tweeted recently a, a reference to, to pedophiles. So we can see that this belief structure is still uh, in place and, and alive and well. It's also fascinating. I mean, you're Nicholas Ferrer there, you know, quoting the, the QAnon slope. Wait, what do you mean belief structure? There are fucking pedophiles. Like, I don't understand that. How is it a belief that pedophiles exist when they fucking do? This is just how ridiculous they are. Again, and saying, well, you know, well, I do know that came from Kennedy's boat. You know, like everything with QAnon, 
it's just not true. I yeah, mean, I mean, look. Uh, and also him saying, well, yes, that whole Clinton thing, Clinton wasn't arrested, but supposedly it can happen three years from now on that same date. I, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, what it means is, you know, two people at CNN were arrested for pedophilia and exposed. Epstein, the boats, what Hillary Clinton did, money, 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 money. Obama's going to go down too. But I digress. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, we we hear hear so much much from people people where they say, I do my own research. I go online, I do my own research. Uh, If they did their own research, they might have been able to see that JFK never said uh, where we go and where where the image of that bell that is circulating online is actually from uh, that very good movie, which I know you enjoy, Anderson White Squall. So, you know, I don't think they often realize it, particularly on that point to say, oh, well, this prediction didn't work out, but it could in two or three years. I don't think they quite realize uh, how ridiculous it sounds when they say it out loud. Uh, It's fascinating. Don't they solve Keep at it. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how someone doesn't say, hey, uh, weren't people arrested for being pedophiles in CNN? Oh, my bad. I guess not. But here is how you know that they're desperate. This is how you know that they're looking for something. But before I show you that, let's talk about the nitpicking. So we're going to see this, Peter Navarro's, and then I'm going to show you how they're desperate. So President Trump's campaign told fake electors in Georgia to use secrecy. Listen to this. Email obtained by the Department of Justice reveals Trump Trump campaign campaign officials in Georgia asked a group of fake electors for complete secrecy and discretion. And what's being investigated is an attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Joining me now is Michael Moore. He's a former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. He's a partner at Moore Hall. Michael, thank you so much for speaking with us about this email. It's really quite a stunning email, and I wonder what stands out in it to you. You know, well, good morning. Uh, it, it is a stunning email in the sense that it's all sort of laid out in a playbook now for prosecutors to look at. I think what they'll have to consider is whether or not this idea of secrecy uh, was something criminal in and of itself, or was it just does it just sort of paint the picture of what was going on in maybe a broader scheme uh, to to uh, affect the outcome of the election? And, and by that, I, I mean this. You know. Um, there's a legitimate way to challenge an election, to challenge the electoral process if they want to do it. The, the problem here is that any time that a prosecutor sees somebody trying to act covertly, to act, try to act under cover of darkness, telling people to not talk about things, you know, that begins to sort of uh, give you an idea that there is some nefarious motive uh, behind uh, the, the, what may otherwise be a legitimate challenge. So the only way to catch them is to have the evidence that they set it up and then keep it as such. The evidence is all out there and you feel like we're struggling. We're really not. And and I'll demonstrate that to you. But as in respects to the electors, in January, I sat with a shit ton of people and they all were too important and busy tweeting and getting on TV and being the center of things. Yeah, oh, yeah, we're going to totally fix this. And yeah, I'm the leader of this and ah, da, 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 da. But, but, I sat there and said, look, can you see this document? Here's the most important part of this document that was sourced um, by Lieutenant Scott Bennett. It says here that they've already sorted out the electors. That means they've paid for them. 
there is no going back. They've got blackmail. These people are not going to lose their livelihoods, their face, or anything for you. Now, you guys need to stop chasing these ballots and stop talking to the electors because they're already paid for, right? So bottom line is, you know, we gave you this. It was already put together. Don't do it. And yet they sat there and still did it. And remember, we were here together on air right after the elections and me pointing out how it's futile to even do it because here's the evidence. I showed it to you live. We did a million shows on that. I showed you the document. We walked it through. We have federal employees calling for a fucking coup, but it's okay because even though I'm frustrated, I think it's almost imperative for the people to see it themselves because it is in the most desperate time and in the lowest level that one can be where you're eating dirt and the only way is up. Now, I want us to see this interview with Peter Navarro. Committee has just hired a former, former producer, producer of Good Morning America called James Goldston. He'll be overseeing the committee's primetime hearings on Thursday night. So the show trial now has a production crew. And of course, we'll be covering that in great detail on Thursday. By arresting Peter Navarro, they're hoping to shut up one of the most vocal critics before it begins. But Peter Navarro is a brave man. He's not shutting up. He joins us now for his first interview since being arrested. He is, as we told you, a former senior, senior White House advisor and the author of Taking Back Trump's America, Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back. He joins us now. Peter Navarro, thanks so much for coming on. Um, how was this allowed? Th this is so outside the bounds, yeah. unless I'm missing something, and I hope if, if so, you'll correct it. This is so outside the bounds of how a civilized country behaves did you see it coming? If not, how do you think this was allowed to happen? Uh, certainly, I, I saw it coming. Uh, we have entered really dangerous, unprecedented waters. Um, Tucker, I was in a position uh, where a partisan committee uh, has weaponized the investigatory powers for the purpose of uh, preventing Donald Trump from ever getting back in the White House. Uh, they subpoenaed me illegally, and um, I, I was faced with the untenable choice of upholding executive privilege, which was not my privilege to waive. That's Donald Trump's privilege to waive. So I did my duty to the president. I did my duty to this country. And here we sit. And, and the civil suit I filed, Tucker, I hope will be historically important because there's really two constitutional issues here at stake. The first, with this weaponization of Congress's investigatory powers, is a clear violation of the separation of powers in our Constitution. The legislative branch is not supposed to be the judge, jury, and execution. I heard one of your commentators there when you played that clip, the purpose was to punish Peter Navarro. That's not their role. That's the judiciary's role. So that alone... Um, is sufficient to render what they have done illegal and therefore what the Department of Justice did uh, illegal. But the bigger issue here, Tucker, and this is where the Department of Justice and committee were so disingenuous. I assert executive, uh, the executive privilege prevents me from, from 
complying with their subpoenas. And instead of going to talk and negotiate the privilege with Donald Trump, as the law requires, they went into this fanciful and absurd notion that Biden, a sitting incumbent president, could strip his immediate predecessor of executive privilege and me, a staff member to the president, of what the Justice Department itself, as you pointed out, uh, has absolute testimonial immunity. It's absurd on its face. Wait, can and every step along the line, go ahead. Well, I have no doubt that it's unconstitutional and it's clearly an abuse of power, but I just want to get to the center of it, which is January 6th. This is the January 6th yeah. committee. You saw Liz Cheney in that disgusting, ridiculous, fawning interview say this it's also chilling. Yes. Did you have anything at all to do with January 6th? No, no, it's it. You, you have that ex exactly right. And and what what you and I have now both said, and which is absolute fact, is that the the mission of that partisan witch hunt kangaroo committee, which is unduly authorized and not properly constituted and has no subpoena power. They have only one mission to concoct a fake hoax around January 6th, based on criminal charges against Trump to prevent him from running for re-election uh, in, in taking back the White House in 2025, January. That's all this is about. And the idea, look, Tucker, this was, I, I, you, I, you said it, I lived right next door, 50 yards from the FBI. On the Wednesday night, I sent an email to Patricia Alloy, the deputy uh, attorney, and said, Look, I'm seeking a modus vivendi here. I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Let's see what we can do. I gave her the name of an attorney. I told Walter Giordano, the FBI agent, who'd come banging on my door the week before. Hey, Walter, I'm here. Just call me whatever you need. You don't need to bang on my door. They chose a different route. They didn't call my attorney. Instead, they went with this shock and awe terrorist strategy. To, yeah, 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 let me go to the airport and then, then take me with five agents like I'm an Al-Qaeda terrorist, rock me into a car. And the next thing I know, look, man, leg irons, handcuffs, strip search. I mean, it was not without comedy. I mean, at one point, the FBI agents couldn't find the door to go into where I was supposed to go. The fingerprint machine didn't work. But, but it, you know, people do not want to sit in solitary confinement in leg irons, denied food, denied water, denied an attorney. And yeah, this is what we live in. I mean, I studied Kafka in college. It took me like till I was 72 to understand Kafka. We, you can't arrest people for political reasons. It's very simple. We've invited every member of that committee on the show. All of them are too cowardly. Kinzinger, Cheney, cowards. But I, yes. I just think this is a, a huge yes. change in the way this country operates. And I, I wanted to note that and extend our sympathy to you, Peter Navarro. Thank you. And Godspeed. So basically, the Department of Justice is showing the world what are you going to do about it. You know what that reminded me? So I was at the Republican convention where I met face-to-face -face with the now suicided, because he didn't want to get indicted, Attorney General of North Dakota. And I came face-to-face -face with him. I was there with both my daughters, who were pages. And I looked at him, and I was like, hey, so I'm here to serve you. And he's like, you can't serve me. I was like, I know I, I can't. But you've already been served. Do you want a copy? And he was like, well, you know, I don't know anything about this. Just sign whatever, you know, they're dealing with it. It's just 500 bucks. Just admit to it. And I was like, I'm not going to admit to something that didn't happen. And I was like, hey, 
if you want a circus, I've got monkeys. And he looked at me and he's like, I heard your daughter got into uh, a Harvard program. Where's she at? And I'm like, what a little fucking bitch. And he was, he's gigantic. He was gigantic, very tall and leaned over kind of like telling me, what are you going to do about it? Little Phoebe at that point stepped on his foot <laughs> when he leaned over kind of with his like, ha 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 ha. When everyone left the room, he just leaned into me. This is real shit though. I don't think you people understand, you know, I talk about it so whiffy-waffy and people are like, whatever. And it's like, no, I literally said that. And he literally leaned into me. This is the attorney general of a state. And he was the attorney general for over 20 fucking years. He owned that state. He owned that state. And so it is really important that you guys understand just how brazen they are. And they laugh and they're like, what are you going to do about it? This is... 100% straightforward. And I don't think people realize how they respond. Like, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Hmm? What are you going to do? And that's how they get away with shit. Because then people sit back and say, holy shit, maybe I should just shut up. They tower over, you know, I'm like five foot round, but five foot. This guy was over six feet tall, towered over me. He looked like a gentleman in his little electomy room where I walked in. He was like, where is she? Right? The one that got in. I heard, and I thought you didn't know shit about this. But suddenly when people leave the room, you heard and you lean over to me. You little bitch. Look where he's at now. Burning. I mean, that's why he took his life. He didn't want to go to jail. Because then Tori would have gotten vindication. So maybe they took him out and said it was suicide. Or wait, no, it was a ulcer or heart attack. I don't know. They got their stories so fucking confused. But the thing is, you should never lack the courage to stand up to evil because it cowers in the presence of good. As long as you stand firm in it. And these people have no shame. You know, while they talk about Georgia, right? We forget the murder of the boyfriend in the car coming lit. We forget about all this stuff that when you put it in order, you're just like, holy crap, this is like a movie. Well orchestrated. And I've seen this shit before. Now, speaking of um, the J6 committee. They're all looking for crimes, right? So the J6 <laughs> committee is supposed to find the President Trump, Trump did a crime. So what they're going to do is they're going to put it on prime time, orchestrate it like a show, keep everyone busy while they're fucking losing in the courts. Now, before I show you what they're doing and how they're digging for crimes, it's important that I uh, bring to your attention. Hold on. Let me pull it up. Um, how they're harnessing in the powers of Congress. So today there was, was it today the opinion? Shit, I'm trying to remember if it was today or uh, there was an opinion put out in a case, uh, Siegel versus Fitzgerald. Well, basically, even Sotomayor, who wrote um, the um, opinion, it turned out that Congress gave breaks Congress. And I, I say this was our, it was argued on April 18th and it was decided yesterday. C 
Congress created the United States Trustee Program as a mechanism to transfer administrative functions previously handled by bankruptcy judges to U.S. trustees, a component of the Department of Justice. Congress permitted the six judicial districts in North Carolina and Alabama to opt out of the trustee program. Hold on. Congress created a trustee program as a mechanism to transfer administrative functions previously handled by bankruptcy judges to U.S. trustees. So say a company goes bankrupt and they're supposed to pay out damages or debtors, creditors, sorry, with the debt of whatever liquidation and divvy that shit up. It goes into U.S. trustees and then it gets handed out and they decide. Well, Congress permitted six judicial districts in North Carolina and Alabama to opt out of this thing, very specific districts, making it so that if you were to go bankrupt in one state, you would pay a lot more than you would in Alabama and North Carolina. So the question one might ask is, what districts are they? Who controls them? What businesses are included in those districts? And why they gave a pass to those districts. So they created it. Congress created it. But they themselves decided that those districts in North Carolina and Alabama don't have to use the trustee program. And therefore, they don't have to pay as much as everyone else. Almost half a million more is what people are paying because they're not in the district. It's the most insane thing, or is it more? So they already said they can't do that. The bankruptcy clause empowers Congress to establish uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. So they have now reined in the power of Congress to make selections. So that actually came out. Another thing is with employers um, that came out, Morgan versus Sundance, I was watching that. It was about a woman. She, she, I think she was working at like Taco Bell or something. And, um, you know, she sued them after leaving. There's a, an agreement that you sign when you work that they're like, you're going to go through arbitration if you get fired before you take us to court. Well, she went to court, okay? And she filed. And the company should have said, oh, you can't file. It's arbitration. But instead, they filed an order to dismiss. And then that was denied by the court. So it went to the next court. And then in the next court, they're like, oh, there's arbitration. So then the court was like, yeah, ma'am, you didn't do the job. And she's like, eight months later, they remember there's arbitration. They should have done it in the first place. They're the fucking ones that wrote the contract. So now I went to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court said, listen, they can't just decide when to remember. They should have filed it in the first place and honor the rules that they make signed. So now the employers are under a contingent position and this is going to cost them out the nose and it's costing a lot of other people a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline. So these are really important things that are happening right now in the Supreme Court that people are not paying attention to because it's not about Trump, it's not about Clinton, and it's not about Barack Hussein Obama. But these are very important things and they want you to be distracted and not pay attention to the fact that NARA is now privatizing presidential archives so they could tell you whatever the fuck they want. They write history. 
credit social credit system is here and it will not go away and you can't stop it now unless you undo everything um they also have second amendment first amendment and roe versus wade along with giving almost executive like powers to non elected persons without the authority of the people I think the dilution of citizenship should be taken into account, but I digress. Now, today I was going to talk about Dominion, but I cannot because of a certain filing that's going. So that has to be filed before I open my mouth. So I apologize for that. Um, now, everyone thinks with J6, they've got a shoe in that they're going to arrest Trump and he's done a high crime, so he can't run for president. And duh. No, that's not true. Because if it were true and they had him on lockdown, they wouldn't be looking for stupid shit like this. There are thousands of dollars worth of gifts given to former President Trump from foreign officials. House Democrats are trying to find out. CNN's Kylie Atwood has this story. Kylie, fill us in. What's going on here? Well, listen, House Democrats are trying to figure out where the location of potentially thousands of dollars worth of gifts uh, that President Trump received from foreign thousands of dollars, like 1,200, 2,300 in total for all the gifts. Are we talking $50 times a hundred? Like, what are we talking about? Because there's limitations to that aside from, I don't know, what did, what did Obama get? Like millions, right? But you know, Trump, 50 bucks times 10, that's illegal foreign governments actually are. Because, because what, what happens, happens here traditionally, Anna, is, is when, when the president, president receives gifts like this, this they are praised at the White House. House. There's, There's a list of all of these gifts that are given to the State Department. They then publish that list. And if the gifts are more than $415, they are U.S. government property. And that is the thing that the officials are looking at here. The State Department does not have the list from the White House of all of the gifts... Wait, you think they're going to come after the sword from the sword dance? That were given to President Trump by foreign governments in 2020. And so, therefore, the State Department wasn't able to make that list public. And there are questions about where those gifts actually are, how much uh, they were apprised at. And the State Department was looking. Yeah. I mean, look, look at the man. He lost money. He gave away all his salary, didn't take a penny. But we need to find out if he took anything more than $415 with him. Can you see how they're grasping at straws? Ooh. Looking into this, trying to figure out where all these gifts are, but they are not able to get into the records that have to do with the White House, with the vice president. And so that is why this committee, the oversight committee, in a letter to the National Archives that was obtained by my colleague, Zach Cohen, is asking the archives to try and get them all of the documents surrounding these gifts to create and collect any information they can about which gift. Now, I would highly suggest Representative Carolyn Maloney, we should do an open records request 
to Congress and find out all the fucking gifts and trips that she's taken on our tax dollars. Maybe she has a receipt with a big booze bill like Pelosi. If we're, we're given, given how, how much, much they, they were apprised at and the like. And, and the, the thing, thing here, Anna, is that we know that there were gifts that were given to President Trump on these foreign trips because they were reported publicly in many instances. There was uh, a marble statue of the Gandhi Three Monkeys uh, statue that was given to President Trump in India. That has been reported on. Uh, the U.S. government doesn't right now know where that statue is. That is just one of the many examples. Where's the statue? It's our statue. You stole it. Where's the sword? Where's the football? But the football is under $415, so it's not government property. Hmm. Can you see them? How desperate they are? Here. And just, just to, to explain, explain to folks why all of this matters, matters. Uh, Chairwoman, Chairwoman Maloney of the House Oversight Committee in this letter to the National Archives uh, wrote that this has to do with national security and foreign policy interests of the United States being at so he would be potentially influenced by other nations while he's giving away his salary and has all the money he needs. How fucking stupid does that sound? Desperate. At risk about possible violations of Constitution, which prohibits the president from obtaining benefits from foreign entities while in office. So clearly, this doesn't just have to do with the gifts, but what those gifts may have represented and any impact they could have had on the president's relationship with those foreign governments. Anna? Yeah, I was reading uh, another example of gift given to the Trump administration officials were like a $5,800 bottle of whiskey that is now missing. And they really span the, the, the full range of types of gifts. Kylie Atwood, thank you for that interesting report. $5,800 bottle of whiskey. I mean, what do you give a man that has everything, that can buy anything he wants? Desperation. This is what this reeks. Desperation. I think we should send the House Oversight Committee to give us, to get information on Obama. We should all start flooding the Obama administration with all the gifts and we want every single location of them. Maybe I can ask him for a specific gift that I know exists that I'm pretty sure he has at his house. Hmm. That's a really good idea. So on that note, guys, have a wonderful evening. God bless you. I will see you tomorrow. We've got the right to choose it. There ain't no way we'll lose it. This is our life. This is our song. We'll fight the powers that be just Don't pick a destiny cause You don't know what you don't belong We're not gonna take it No, we ain't gonna take it We're not gonna take it Never ending We draw one Nothing, not a thing
Whoa.